Hello. Hi. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that was that was that was interesting. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, feel I was like trying we're to in, like brain fry mode. Just... Yeah, I was trying to like get us into the spirit of the thing because uh, yeah. I know I've been like rushed today. Mm-hmm. I feel like I've been rushed for the last several days and just had like big things going on every day, which has made it hard to do the research for this show, which right. I love. Um, <laughs> and then you're dealing with some home owner BS. Yeah, some intense trauma around Costco and a new washer and dryer. Jesus, intense <laughs> trauma. And I'd call it you out, Costco. You've made my life pretty miserable. For that days. sucks. And that sucks because Costco is usually so great. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, but there are it's a it's a fail on the washer dryer situation. Yeah, I mean it's it's whenever you talk to someone, they're super helpful. It's just the five hours on hold to get them to schedule oh, the most gross. simplest thing has been gross. maddening. But anyway, we won't go down the rabbit hole. We won't go down the rabbit hole. I'm Amelia Ampuero. I'm Scotty Milder. This is the we, weirdest thing. Yep, we're your co-hosts with the most hosts. And uh, we're here to tell you, here's my dog coming in like a lady. And we're here to tell you about some weird stuff we learned about this week. Yeah. So yeah. I think you're starting this week. So. Yep. I'm kicking it off. Uh, my sources for this are Wikipedia, the National Park Service, which okay. will only be weird when you understand the topic that I'm doing. All right. Um, <laughs> the Legacy Project Chicago, Unladylike 2020, Women You Should Know, and an article from the Journal of Women's... My dog's going to get the zoomies we're, we're right just, now. We're just going to power We're just going to roll through it. We're just going to roll yeah. with it. This is a <laughs> little peek behind the curtains, guys. <laughs> what are you doing? Okay. Uh, and an article from the Journal of Women's History titled, Was Mom Chung a, quote, sister lesbian, hmm, Asian okay. American gender experimentation and interracial homoeroticism by Judy Tsu Chun Wu. And Judy Tsu Chun Wu also wrote the book, Dr. Mom Chung of the Fair Hair Bastards. Um, okay. I'll talk a little bit more about what that is all, all about. Very fascinating. Yeah. So happy Asian American and Pacific Islander month, everybody. Um, Yeah, that is uh, the month of May. And in celebration and in honor of that, I am going to talk about Dr. Margaret Mom Chung, the first known American-born Chinese female physician, adopted mother of over 1,000 American military servicemen, and transcender of gender, racial, and cultural Barriers. This is going to be such a intense contrast with my story, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there we go. Okay. So just a little uh, like advisory note here, because we are dealing with a woman of color who was born uh, in the late 1800s and lived through the 
early part of the 1900s, we will be dealing with some outdated and um, racist terms for Asian people. Obviously, disclaimer, those are not my words. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm using them in a historical context. Um, So just like know that. And and, uh, I was going to say and be joyful, but that is not the correct sentiment. (laughs) You know what I mean? Okay. So she was born Margaret Jessie Chung on October 2nd, 1889. She was born in Santa Barbara, California. Her parents were Chinese immigrants. They immigrated to the U.S. in the 1870s separately. Obviously, they didn't like come together. There was a big influx of uh, people immigrating to the U.S. from China from about 1849 till about 1882. It started with the gold rush and continued because there was pretty significant economic and political instability in China during these times. Right. So Chinese people started, you know, they started coming to the U.S. because of the gold rush. And in 1882, the U.S. passes the Chinese Exclusion Act to ban Chinese laborers. And it was the first law of its kind to ban a particular nationality by name. Um, I think if there had been measures in place, it had sort of been like immigrants. Um, Yeah, I mean, that goes back to the founding of the country. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But the the Chinese Exclusion Act was really was the first one. And it was like, no, specifically people from from this country, from this place. People from China were seen as a threat to, of course, American laborers. Um, They were seen as inherently alien and they were even called the yellow peril wow yeah the majority of male immigrants male um, of male chinese immigrants you know they were working on the railroad system they were working they were building irrigation systems they were building the fishing industry they were working as migrant farm workers mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff of the People that immigrated to the U.S. from China, 4% of them were female, and the majority of those female immigrants ended up in forced sex work. Oh. Many of them while they were still children. And a little bit of a trigger warning here for some talk about underage stuff. But when I say children, I don't mean 16 and 17 year olds. I mean 10 year olds. Right. Chung's mother arrived in the U.S. when she was five years old and she was likely sold into the sex trade. She was arrested at the age of 11 in a brothel in, a, in, in San Francisco. I saw some sources that simply state that she was like raised in a brothel. I do not have that kind of faith in humanity i mean yeah i think there's lots of lines we're gonna have to read between yeah that statement yeah almost nothing is known of her father just by the way but her her mom would go on to work as an interpreter she also became uh became a christian chung's father was the foreman at the rancho wadalaska in ventura county sources say that Both of her parents got sick, but again, like the only thing I could really find about her father is that he was the foreman at this ranch. Okay. And then that he maybe got sick and then like you never heard from him ever again. (laughs) (laughs) So I can't find out what kind of illness her father had, but her mother did suffer from tuberculosis. Mm. This is a quote from Margaret Chung herself. Each month there would be several nights that I would stand at the foot of her bed all night long, agonized with terror, watching her die a little at a time. Margaret was the oldest of 11 children. She basically raised the other 10 from the age of 10. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah. She did stuff like she picked apricots on a ranch. She worked in restaurants. I saw stuff that was like when she was in middle school, she was working 12-hour days in restaurants and going to school. I I mean, how do you even? I don't know. 
<laughs> and, and just just i gotta interject like as you're going through this whole thing it is just such a contrast with my story and we'll get into it but it's like man talk about the yin and the yang here which is i mean and good you know nice yeah. like this will be a, a a nice contrast but she was you know doing these things she also worked selling newspapers and that work actually earned her a scholarship the los angeles herald wrote a lot of articles about her like if you look at the sources for the wikipedia article the first quarter of them are just articles from the Los Angeles Herald from like 1905, 1906, 1907. Like they were just like, you know, way back then. Yeah. Yeah. And writing about her, like they named her as one of one of the most promising young students in the area. They talked about her. They did another article talking about her desire to become a reporter. They published a poem that she wrote called Missionary Giving that was delivered at the 18th anniversary of the Los Angeles Congregational Chinese Mission. Mm. All of this stuff. And even though she talked about wanting to become a reporter, there's another quote of hers where she's talking about how she didn't have any toys when she was a child because they were very poor. And she would take bananas and basically do surgery on the bananas and like practice sutures and stuff on these bananas. Wow. She is definitely somebody who was like, there is a life that I want for myself and I'm doing everything possible. Just doing the work. Yeah, just 100% doing the work and 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 looking I think for any avenue that would give her that right. life. Of course she was an excellent student. I say of course because, you know, she's definitely got a work ethic that yeah. she's putting into place here and a desire for betterment. So she's an excellent student and she gets enrolled in the preparatory school at University of Southern California. She's hailed as a bright particular star of the women's gymnasium class. I have no idea yeah. what that means. <laughs> when I saw it, I was like, oh, I, like my mind filled in the blanks and went gymnastics team. And then I was like typing it up and I was like, no, it's his gymnasium class. So she was just like really good at gym. It doesn't matter. She was yeah, just probably like just know that badminton or something. Yeah. And she, she was just rocking across the board. In 1911, she attends the College of Physicians and Surgeons at USC. She's the only woman. She's the only person of color in her class. It is during that time that she starts dressing as a man and calling herself Mike. Okay. Here's another quote from her. Any woman surgeon bucks heavy odds of prejudice. When that woman is of Chinese descent, she is granted even fewer mistakes. There are a lot of thoughts about what was going on here with the masculine dress and right. going by Mike. We're just going to put a pin in that and okay. I'll come back to it full force. Yeah, in just a I have bit. questions, but I'm assuming that's what you're leaving. <laughs> yeah. So after she graduates from this College of Physicians and Surgeons in 1916, Chung was rejected from internships all over the country and even medical missionary work in China. Like she was just looking for an outlet and everybody Mm. was like, nope, 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 nope. She, and this is, this has a lot to do with her race. It also has to do with the fact that she is applying as a surgeon and that was unheard of at the time. So she settles for working as a surgical nurse in Los Angeles at the Santa Fe Railroad Hospital. And that's a hospital that she'll come back to a little bit later on. Okay. Um, She ends up moving to Chicago to train at Mary Thompson Hospital, which was a hospital that was devoted to training not only female physicians, but also on the care of female patients. In what year? This was 1916. I mean- I don't want to like overstate this, but that seems like surprisingly progressive that they would have a hospital devoted to that. 
I think it was probably because they were like, women are still dying in childbirth. Like, can we, can we, can we figure this the fuck out? Like, can we figure out the vagina and like, just figure it out? (laughs) Can we solve the the (laughs) Rubik's cube that is the vagina? (laughs) Precisely. Um, (laughs) So she's studying at this Mary Thompson hospital and she's studying under a Dr. Bertha Van Hoosen, who like she was Dr. Bertha Van Hoosen was working at this hospital. She also co-founded the American Medical Women's Association. So she's she's a pretty big deal. Yeah. And again, she's focused on training female doctors for the purpose of tending to female patients. Mm -hmm. Van Hoosen referred to her mentees as her surgical daughters. Which I thought was nice. Okay, so Chung returns to Los Angeles in 1918 and she opens her own practice right basically as Hollywood is like taking off. Yeah. She ends up doing plastic surgery on men who'd had accidents on, I think Chinese men specifically, who'd had accidents and had gotten disfigured working on the railroad. So she starts doing plastic surgery on them. And then of course, Hollywood comes calling and she ends up doing plastic surgery and just other general surgery on some Hollywood stars. I mean, it's amazing, but not surprising that that was starting way like that far back in the early. From the get-go. Yeah. Not quite good looking enough. (laughs) Let's fix your face. Mary Pickford was actually one of her first Hollywood clients. And I saw some things that were like plastic surgery. Mary Pickford had surgery. And then I saw other places that were like Mary Pickford had like her tonsils out. Oh, okay. Dr. So. Chung did that surgeries. It's unclear. Yeah. I'm not <laughs> I saying. I mean, maybe you have tonsils out and then like a little nip and touch. Just a little, yeah, just a little lift, a little lift and tighten just yeah. to, you know, <laughs> keep things fresh. And it's through this work that she starts meeting people like John Wayne, Tennessee Williams, and even Ronald Reagan. In 1922, Chung moves her practice from LA to San Francisco's Chinatown. And there she really focuses on treating local Chinese, like the local Chinese American population, but she also starts treating like San Francisco celebrities like Sophie Turner, Helen Hayes, Tallulah Bankhead, as well as she gets this like collection of seven Navy reserve pilots. Interesting. I mean, this uh-huh. almost reminds me, I'm forgetting his name now, but your earlier story of the 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 black architect. Paul Williams. Paul Williams, where he There's was some... doing the like, you know, the houses for the stars so that he could like build his like low income housing. And There's some yeah. cool parallels between the two. Interesting. Okay. So this is where we get to Mom Chung and her fair haired bastards. <laughs> Okay. So while she's treating these seven Navy reserve pilots, she also like part of what she believes to be her treatment of them is also cooking for them. Okay. Um, And they begin in turn calling her mom. And that's how she gets the name mom Chung. And they start referring to themselves as her fair haired bastards. So these are American military servicemen who come Mm -hmm. under her care. And then they're like, you're our mom now. And she's like, yes, I am. (laughs) Which is very sweet. Yeah. Yeah. There's also something in there that it was like, I saw a couple of things about how like these servicemen would eat anything that she put in front of them with the exception of eggs, because there was something about like the only farmers who would allow Navy pilots to buy on credit were egg farmers. So they were like 
we cannot look at any more eggs. <laughs> she was like, got it. Okay. No eggs. Another sort of origin story for this mom Chung and her fair haired bastards says that eight pilots came to her in 1932 to volunteer their services for China against Japan. This is, we're getting into basically all of the stuff that is leading into Japan's inclusion in world war two. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I'm not going to go into it very much, but just kind of know that Japan was kind of fucking was really kind of fucking around in China and yeah. not, not, not being great. I mean, not being great is like maybe the understatement, understatement of, of the century. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we don't need to go into the gory, gory, gory details. But right. Yeah. But know that there are gory, gory, gory details yes. about this. The other story goes that she gets these eight Navy pilots that are like, hey, we want to know how we can volunteer to aid China. And mom Chung is like, I, I, <laughs> I have no idea how to get you to do that, but I do know how to feed you. So come on in. <laughs> Here's some food. Yeah. Here's she was life. like, <laughs> she was like, you look starved. And then, yeah. you know, and then uh, basically like uh, in quotes adopted these, right. these servicemen prior to the U S getting into world war two, Chung gave each of her boys a Jade Buddha that they could wear around their neck so that they could recognize each other all over the world. Oh, wow. Uh, and apparently they all did. Like it was a way to be like, Oh my God, you're one of mom Chung's boys. And like camaraderie. Nice. She didn't only adopt pilots though the non-aviation naval officers that she took under her wing got dubbed golden dolphins Mm. (laughs) (laughs) throughout the 1930s chung organized what were called rice bowl parties and these were okay so rice bowl parties were these big like parties parades fundraisers that would happen basically to to collect money to support chinese civilians affected by the second sino-japanese war so that's actually the conflict that we're talking about Mm -hmm. at this time right and you know again just just a quick little just a quick little blurb about that. Uh, That was a military conflict between the Republic of China and the Empire of Japan. It lasted from 1937 to 1945. And Mm -hmm. it's often regarded as the beginning of, like I said, World War II in Asia. Right. So she would throw these rice bowl parties and apparently she organized them in over 700 cities. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So she's just She's just moving and shaking and (laughs) I'll post, I'll post a picture of it on social media, like the banners for it. It's a little striking to see something like so racialized. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Well, all those like World War II area propaganda posters are pretty intense. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I'll, I'll, you'll, you'll see, you'll see what I'm talking about. Okay. So she also ended up volunteering as a frontline surgeon when Japan invaded China, but I guess the military was like, cool. Thanks for volunteering. What we actually want you to do is to secretly recruit pilots for the first American volunteer group, also known as the flying tigers. And she did. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I've heard of the flying tigers. Yeah. Yeah, she re- she secretly recruited over a hundred pilots for the Flying Tigers. Wow. Yeah. So the Flying Tigers were pilots from the U.S. Army Air Corps, Navy, and Marine Corps that defended China during the war. The network, her network, grew to over a thousand men, and they all referred to Chung as Mom Chung. Oh, wow. So she's like this massive figure in these men's lives. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> During the war, Chung was quite the hostess. It seems like from everything that I read that she was a devoted patriot of both the U.S. and China. Yeah. So she was really working with this war effort and she she would host, you know, like 175 people at a time in her home for Thanksgiving. She would wrap and address over 4,000 like Christmas care packages for these, these servicemen. Hmm. Um, guests in her home were like high-ranking officers, senators, congressmen, etc. She was a badass. Chung well, used- And I think it's important, like just that point that you just made that she was patriotic to both China and the United States. Yeah. Like that's an important point because I think the way, unfortunately, we tend to think about patriotism in this country too often is that it's like loyalty to the U.S., never question anything, kind of fuck everybody else. And it's yeah. Like, and I, I think it's, I mean, some of the most patriotic people I know are immigrants mm -hmm. because they moved here to get away from something else. Right. So, but they, but it doesn't mean they have to look back at their home country or their ancestors' no. country and be like, fuck that place. Like, right. You can They're, love them. Yeah. Yes, precisely. Precisely. Yeah. So Chung used these connections that she was making with these like high-ranking officials and congressmen and senators and all that stuff to start the Women Accepted for Volunteer Emergency Service, which was also known as WAVES. It was a way for women to participate in the military. Even though she started it, <laughs> she was not allowed to join. The official reason that was given was her age, mm. but it is probably much more likely that either her race was an issue or that she was denied because the government suspected that she was gay. Yeah. So let's hop into this a little bit. From about okay. the 40s to the 60s, federal employees suspected of being queer were forced to resign or were fired because of their sexuality. This is like all basically the doing of Joseph McCarthy and his stupid ass red scare, you know, which was looking for not just communists, but anything that was considered un-American. And apparently homosexuals were part of that grouping. Uh, and mm -hmm. this all, this all goes into the lavender scare, which is yep. a whole thing that at some point is, would, is a great topic to cover. Um, yeah. I don't know much about it, but I've heard like the broad strokes. Yeah, which I'm, I'll give you some broad strokes here as well for in case our listeners don't know. This whole like arm of the Red Scare is known as the Lavender Scare. Mm -hmm. The federal government was under the impression that people who were gay were more susceptible to manipulation and therefore a threat to the country. Okay. You all should just be looking at Amelia's <laughs> face right now. <laughs> it's just so fucking stupid. It's yeah. just the stupidest. I just come out and say that 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 you're scared of gay people or that you yeah. don't like gay people. You just people. think it's icky. Don't make it about fucking communism or whatever. Right. Like it's so dumb. <laughs> Ugh. Former U.S. Senator Alan K. Simpson says of the Lavender Scare, quote, the so-called Red Scare has been the main focus of most historians of that period of time. A lesser known element and one that harmed far more people was the witch hunt McCarthy and others conducted against homosexuals. Mm -hmm. So we're going to pop back to mom's sexuality and gender expression. Yeah. From her own writings... Chung is known to have had two intense relationships with women. The first was writer Elsa Gridlow, and the second was entertainer Sophie. Hold up. <laughs> Hold up. Hold up. Because I wrote Sophie Tucker, but I don't actually think that's right. I think it's Sophie Turner. I am sorry. <laughs> <laughs> 
hold on. Hold on. I might leave this in. No. (laughs) Okay. No, I think it is Sophie Tucker. Okay. Okay. If I get it wrong, please don't fact check me. Um, (laughs) I'll correct it later. Okay. First is writer Elsa Gridlow. Second is entertainer Sophie Tucker. Gridlow was Canadian American poet. She penned the first openly gay volume of lesbian love poetry titled on a gray thread. Mm. Um, She also worked as an amateur journalist with Roswell George Mills and the two published Les Mouches Fantastiques, which was the first Northern American magazine to discuss queer issues. Fellow amateur journalist, H.P. Lovecraft did not dig this and attacked, <laughs> shocking. <laughs> shocking and attacked the work, which caused Elsa and Roswell to be like, well, fuck you, bro. And then it started this like public feud between them. Yeah. Um, I think I might've run across that in my reading. Oh, what year was that? No idea. Okay. Well, we'll get to it when we get to my story. <laughs> okay. Fantastic. Ridlow had a non-monogamous relationship with a woman named Tommy. Mm. Um, Gridlow herself is a bit of an interesting character. I believe Tommy is said to have been of African descent. She also like spent a lot of time hanging out in Chinatown, which is how she got to know Chung. And she's a white woman of American and and Canadian descent. Mm-hmm. So there's some stuff there. Okay. Yeah. While they're they're living in, you know, in this sort of area where Chung's practices, Gridlow and her partner Tommy become Chung's patients and they also become her friends. It seems that Chung and Gridlow had a mutual, though perhaps like unconsummated love between mm-hmm. them. Of Chung, Gridlow said, quote, she was a striking woman in her late 30s, smartly dressed in a dark tailored suit. With my increasing interest in Chinese people, their philosophy and literature, and suspecting she might be a sister lesbian, I was immediately attracted. There. <laughs> There's some assumptions happening. Well, it's not just that there's some assumptions, but okay. (laughs) <laughs> I'll, con- I'll continue and then I'll, I'll, I'll put my okay. two cents in. Okay. So in the Was Mom Chung a Sister Lesbian article, the author posits that Gridlow had a, quote, orientalist fascination with Chinese culture that mm. probably fueled her interest in Chung. Mm. Um, it feels like from the writings that I saw of Gridlow about Chung that there was this sort of like cultural voyeurship there mm-hmm. was definitely some like fetish fetish fetishization i didn't fetishization. even i had like three <laughs> chances to listen to you get it wrong and i still <laughs> fucked it up <laughs> oh my god uh i have to say that word a couple more times and just know that i'm, I'm gonna mess it up every time but yeah so i don't know it just it it feels like Gridlow was this woman who was like, I am very progressive. And I, you know, I have, I have like a lover who is black and I hang out with Chinese people, but she's like collecting people for like her curio cabinet. I mean, it's a really good thing. This doesn't happen today. It's so good that this doesn't happen today. We're so far beyond this. Yeah. Oh God. So yeah, that kind of, not just from Gridlow, but from like society at large, that kind of like cultural voyeurship um, might have been one of the reasons why Chung was moved to occupy a kind of more androgynous 
space. Yeah. At the time, uh, and I mean, honestly, still today, although somewhat in a different way, at the time, Chinese women were really seen by society as either these like exploited sex workers or these like submissive docile wives with bound feet. Right. Um, Chung's decision to dress as a dude. And she did. Let me also say this. She was not dressing as a Chinese man. She was dressing smartly as a Western man. And when I say smartly, I don't mean wisely. I mean like fashionably. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like she had really excellently tailored suits. She carried a short sports cane. Like there's this whole thing in this article where like she, she might've been able to be inconspicuous, but she was like carrying this like fancy walking stick. Yeah. So there's, there's, some defiance there 100 percent which i always respect yes yeah so chung's decision to dress as a western man and go by the name mike might have been her way of like one making space for herself in a male-dominated profession absolutely but also two subverting the cultural expectations of like a wasp society right chung describes herself as a homely child who never got much attention from boys her age so she learned to game the system here we go again subverting Mm -hmm. uh society rules, which is just very cool. As a kid, when she was working, picking apricots on this farm, she would see that the boys would take the like large ripe apricots and give them to the pretty girls and then would throw Chung the small green ones. Mm. And she was like, okay, okay. So I'm like, I'm starting to see how this works now. Yeah, She was starting to understand that she wouldn't be able to get things by emphasizing her femininity. So instead as a child, she started participating in traditional male activities with the boys like on equal footing, like as an equal mm-hmm. in med school, whenever she needed money, Chung would borrow a penny or two from one of the other dudes. And she'd start, she'd start shooting craps with them Yeah, and she would play until she'd gotten enough money to like buy some food, get car fare for the next day. Maybe, maybe like even some pie. She has this whole thing about like, I could buy half a pie. <laughs> and like <laughs> yeah. She was like, I've got it made. Dressing like a man also let Chung take opportunities that weren't normally available to women. And additionally, she wasn't, like I said, she wasn't dressing as a Chinese man, but a Western one. And there was this, there was this sense of subversion with how she decided to like wander through the world. And it didn't seem to be about assimilation, but rather a rewriting of the rules. Yeah. Because like assimilation would be her trying to dress as a, like a Western woman, you know, like a Gilmore. Mm-hmm. What is it? Am I getting it right? I said Gilmore girl, but that's not right. <laughs> Gibson girl. Gibson girl. <laughs> But I mean, that would have been assimilation, like dressing yes. like a dude carrying a cane and like a sharply tailored suit is not assimilation. Yeah. I mean, there's something a little like ostentatious about it, but I mean, like it, uh, there's something bold about yeah. it. It also makes me think that she wasn't dressing as a man to hide her femininity. No. Um, she's pretty, she's pretty cool. I want to talk a little bit here just to make a brief interjection about having a cultural awareness when we're talking about queer people of color. There are people from communities of color for whom it is very hard for them to live their lives as out mm-hmm. individuals. Um, and I think a lot of times that's like, oh, it's because they come from these really like, what's the word I'm looking for like misogynistic patriarchal cultures repressive old world that kind of thing first people of communities of color they have those ideals because those are colonizer ideals that were put 
upon them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it is clear if you go back that there are a lot of non wasp cultures that had a lot of acceptance and understanding of gender fluidity and gender expression and queerness and all of those things. And that was, you know, put out of them by colonizers. So there's also that. But we're also talking about people that hesitancy to live like an out and proud life can also be influenced by WASP society's views on that particular culture. And what I'm talking about here is like a perceived hypersexuality of certain races, the fetish fetishization uh, Mm -hmm. of others, the, you know, people from these communities being seen as like exotic, fiery. And in that way, that is confines that are again being placed on these communities of color by WASP culture that may make them hesitant to draw a lot of attention to their sexual lives. Right. So just something to think about. I hear sometimes people being like, oh yeah, this happens because they live in these like, you know, outdated patriarchal cultures. And, and I'm like, mm, I, I, I think that, I think that there are a couple of sides to that coin. Well, and, it's just always way more complicated than that kind of yeah. reductionist way of looking at it. Yeah. And I think it's important to see how things like white supremacy add to and affect that. So just like food for thought. Okay. So with that in mind, Chung's decision to put her like feminine drag away for a while during this part of her life is even honestly like more radical because she, she wasn't trying to hide her Asian-ness, but she was rather not allowing the opportunities for other to judge her against the fetishized perceptions of her race and gender. Right. So I don't know. I just think that that's really fucking cool. Yeah. That she's like, I know that this place that I'm in wants to see Asian women as either like deeply submissive and docile or overly sexualized. And so I'm not going to let you do either. Right. Well, and it needs to, I mean, we need to also acknowledge that it wasn't just like cool that she did it, which it is, but it's like, she's, you know, when, when people, particularly in in that kind of timeframe are uh, pushing so hard against these kind of norms that are being pressed onto them, it's like, she was also putting herself in danger. Because sometimes people react violently. Yeah. You know? So, I mean, I'm not, I don't know where the story's going, but like, you know, that's just like a context you have. Like there's, there's a physical bravery to it. that's beyond just yeah. like pushing against society. It's like, you could get your ass kicked. And it was, it's interesting because she was, you know, like I said a little bit before, she was not trying to not be seen, but rather she was making sure that she was seen on her own terms. Right. Yeah. I think that's pretty cool. So there are also people that want to, as always, there are people that want to put labels on everybody. And there are a lot of people that want to label Chung as both a lesbian and possibly as maybe a trans person. I mean, I understand why. And I understand too, but to be clear, from my understanding, Chung was not trying to live in the world like a man, mm-hmm. um, but rather was, yeah, just trying to kind of write her own rules. Yeah. There's also stuff in that article, which is so, is so smart. It's like, it's, it's long. It's a long, <laughs> long, long article, um, but it's just has a lot of fascinating ideas, but it's worth it to mention that she did not even use the term lesbian for herself. Yeah. And now whether that is due to societal, cultural ideas of the period or not, 
I don't know, but she did not choose to identify like that even among lesbians. Mm -hmm. So just Uh, just seems like she's rejecting all labels. She's yeah, she's just like fuck it, fuck it, fuck it. I like she definitely played fast and loose with gender expression. Mm -hmm. Um, I I don't know how she would have identified herself as in terms of gender. It doesn't seem like she would have identified herself outside of the label of of female. Right. I mean, like I said, I understand why people want to sort of retcon people's labels and identities, but it's like, I just think you got to be careful. Like it's going to come up a little bit in my story too. It's like, you got to be careful. We don't know. We weren't there. And like, she doesn't belong to anybody but herself. Yeah. That's a lovely way of putting it. Yeah. So like respect her for what she did, but don't like put your own assumptions on her. Right. She was also occupying this space where like she had a lack of facility with the Chinese language. She had made this decision to dress in Western men's clothing and she had some kind of attraction to women and it left her in this sort of like liminal space. Right. Right. Of where like she couldn't quite claim any community that she was kind of partially inhabiting inhabiting mm-hmm. yeah so just i don't know i think that's like that's that's an interesting thing to think about that she was all of these things and like couldn't be contained by any by any like you said like, like by anyone. any label right yeah yeah so back to the sister lesbian article <laughs> this is a quote Chung accepted the dichotomous perception of Eastern and Western culture and used this juxtaposition to gain opportunities for herself. The physician who never wore Chinese clothing decorated her medical office in Chinatown with furnishings in Orient artistry. The use of Oriental decorations suggested she staged her office as a tourist site for her increasing white clientele. So again, much like Paul Williams being like, I get it. Like I get how the game is played. I know what you're going to want to see when you come in here Mm -hmm. and I'll, and you know, I'll give you a little bit of it. Right. Speaking back to her, her attraction to women and these relationships that she had with women, she was engaged to a man for a time, but she never married. Um, Regarding Chung's engagement, Gridlow wrote, I think in a diary, M is going to get married. It is bald, but it is a man and it has half a million. <laughs> I mean, that's me minus the half a million. So. Uh, um, another sacrifice to the twin gods, manners and respectability. The fact that she called this poor dude it is, <laughs> is one of the funniest things I've yeah, ever heard. Just, just no fucks to give. It is bald, but it is a man and it has <laughs> half a million. Like Gridlow was like, fuck this, fuck this dude. That brought me <laughs> a, a huge amount of delight. Um, so very little is known about Chung's fiance. Like we don't even know what race he was, mm-hmm. but it does seem that Chung broke off the engagement when the man would not provide financial support for Chung's sister's education. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah. So she was like, like, if you're not even going to give me money, like, what are you good for? <laughs> yeah. You're uh, just bald. You're just a bald. Yeah. Dude. Okay. And see here again, I have Turner written for Sophie Turner. Okay. I'll just call her Sophie. Sophie. <laughs> well, Sophie Turner is. Uh, Sophie Turner is Game, Game of, Game of Thrones. Thrones. You're right. Okay. So it is Sophie Tucker. Okay. okay. Fantastic. So that's how we know. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> like, you can't see me. 
listeners, but I'm sitting here miming typing with a confused look on my face. Like, <laughs> why does this sound not right? Okay. <laughs> So Sophie Tucker, uh, we'll talk a little bit about her relationship with Sophie Tucker here. This was a relationship that took place over a decade after whatever it was that she had with, with Gridlow. Mm-hmm. Um, also, it seems too that there's a lot of, there's a story about Gridlow where she has like a surgery, she has an operation and as she's like coming out of the anesthesia, you know, Chung is there with her and she's like, do you love me? And and Chung <laughs> is like, if it makes you feel better, yes, I love you. Yeah. Because there were a bunch of other doctors around and then when they were in private she asked again and chung was like yes stupid Mm -hmm. but like you asked me in front of a bunch of people yeah but again it's interesting because this was a relationship that could have been consummated and it's and and it seems like neither of her relationships with women were consummated like Mm -hmm. they were very passionate they were very intense very loving but they weren't and the question will always i think remain about whether or not that that was because chung herself was like I don't know if I want to have sex with a woman or if she was like, I don't know how I feel about being a a woman who has sex with women. Yeah. We're never going to know that, but that is something I think to think about. Okay. Chung, uh, by the time she gets into this relationship with Sophie Tucker, um, had stopped dressing like a man. She was moving into, you know, she's moving pretty steadily into middle age and she had taken on this sort of like glamorous maternal identity. There are a lot of Mm -hmm. pictures of her with like her hair done up. She's draped in furs, you know, she's, she's doing all of this stuff. So yeah, she'd adopted this glamorous maternal identity for the white servicemen that she had adopted. Mm -hmm. Um, This new persona also allowed her and Sophie to outwardly seem like they were the sort of like co-mothers of the war effort. Yeah. Additionally, it was also indicative of where like femininity was going in Hollywood, like the, the, you know, the like waifish forms of people like Mary Pickford and all that stuff was going away. And instead we were getting women like Mae West, you right. know, these sort of the kind of grand dirty. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it was this perception of, of, of femininity that was like strong, autonomous, competent, career oriented, mm-hmm. that kind of a thing. Turner and Chung had an intimate and loving relationship, but again, like for all intents and purposes, it seems like the thing was never consummated. They also had this like dynamic, like Chung would write to Sophie and would compare them to Naomi and Ruth, which are, they're Old Testament characters, right? Yeah. Yeah. And would, you know, there was this sort of like mother baby dynamic that they would have where they would, and they would like switch these roles. But then it was also, you know, Chung was writing letters to Sophie that was like, I sent you this blue nightgown. And when you wear of it, think of me because I want to be as close to you as this nightgown is. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like it goes beyond just like platonic, but like, yeah, I'm going to talk a little bit about asexuality when I get to my story. Mm. You know, there is a difference between asexuality and aromantic. Romanticism. Very and it's true. possible to be an asexual person, but still have romantic attachments. Very and like, true. That, again, we're just speculating, but that could be an element of what's happening here. You know? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot and I don't think it's, as, I don't think any of it can be labeled simply as like anything really. Right. <laughs> so, like you, like we said, it just doesn't fit any easy label or box. Yeah. So throughout all of this, Chung is like, you know, she continues to be devoted to these adopted sons, these fair haired bastards. And she would even go on to quote unquote adopt the entire VF2 squadron, which was nicknamed the Rippers. 
Rose, mm. um, who set an American record by shooting down 67 Japanese planes in a single day during the Marianas Turkey shoot in June of 1944. Mm-hmm. Um, quick little sidebar about that. That was part of the Battle of the Philippine Sea. And that was a battle that basically took out the Japanese Navy's ability to conduct large scale carrier actions. Right. So it was, right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, it was a big deal. Yeah. I think I've heard a little bit about that. So yeah, uh, it, it, I think did a good job of hamstringing the Japanese Navy. Right. Chung retired from medicine 10 years after the end of World War II and her adopted sons got together, pulled money and they bought her a house. <laughs> it's so sweet. That's very sweet. Ugh. In 1958, Chung had surgery for ovarian cancer, but it was pretty clear that her time was drawing to a close. Mm. So she quickly got to work, you know, sort of planning out her will and testament. And she planned her own funeral and she really planned it to be not just a celebration of her life, but um, a celebration of her thousands of adopted sons. Yeah. On January 5th, 1959, Dr. Margaret Chung succumbed to her illness. Mm. The mayor of San Francisco and two Navy admirals were among her pallbearers. Wow. She served as the inspiration for the character, Dr. Mary Ling, played by Anna Mae Wong, who will probably also be an episode in, mm-hmm. in this coming month in the 1939 film king of chinatown mm, okay three flying fortresses were named mama chung in her honor mm. and she was even depicted in comic books from the era like she like came into the pop cultural lexicon i think that's because i've heard of her i didn't know mm-hmm. much about her and i think it's through like i've seen some of the comic images of mm-hmm. her Okay. Yeah, it's it's very cool. And I think like the comic books are because they didn't want to say the word bastard on there. So I think the comic books are like Mom Chung and her fair haired foster sons. (laughs) (laughs) Fair haired uh, lads. Fair haired dudes. She was nice to. Yeah. On October 11th, 2012, Chung was commemorated with a plaque in Chicago's Legacy Walk Project. This is an outdoor public display slash museum that celebrates LGBTQ history and people. To this day, just to end on a just end on a little bit of a down note. Sorry. (laughs) Um, But to this day, women make up 80% of healthcare workers, but only 20% of leadership positions. And they also experience huge racial and gender pay gaps. Mm -hmm. Um, Healthcare workers also report some of the highest rates of sexual harassment. Mm -hmm. The Time's Up, which we started to hear about a lot uh, in the last couple of years, they're a charity that raises money to support victims of sexual harassment. Time's Up says that of the 5,500 plus cases that were sent to the Times Up Legal Defense Fund, the industry with the second highest number of claims was healthcare. Wow. Additionally, I, mean, I guess I'm not surprised, but it's disappointing. Yeah, I believe the first is um, agricultural workers. That also is not surprising at all. Yeah, it fucking sucks. Additionally, since the outbreak of COVID, Asian Americans have seen extraordinary racial discrimination and violence. If you are listening to this and you would like to learn more about how you can support Asian American communities at this time, you can check out the Asian Pacific Fund, the Asian Mental Health Collective, and the National Asian Pacific American Women's Forum. And that is the incredible, will not be tamed or labeled story of Dr. Margaret Mom Chung. That's awesome. Yay! Hit it! I have worked with the earth at the dawning 
When the sky was a vaporous flame I have seen the dark universe yawning Where the black planets roll without aim Where they roll with their horror unheeded Without knowledge or luster or name I had drifted our seas without ending under sinister Okay, well, uh, for all of you horror fans and horror writers who I know are listening to the show, StokerCon is coming up uh, in just the next <gasps> oh. couple weeks. And so I want to spend the next couple of weeks talking about some of the writers that have really like changed and defined the genre of horror. Mm. Um, I've already talked about Stephen King. I've talked some about Shirley Jackson and Mary Shelley. But this week I'm going to dive into, and this is, by the way, somewhat by popular request. I've mentioned doing this on the show. And then I've had some of my friends who are horror writers message me and be like, when are you going to do this? You keep saying you're going to do it. So we're going to do it. This is the life and legacy or I should say, this is the problematic life <laughs> legacy oh, yeah. of one Howard Phillips Lovecraft, <laughs> essentially the first writer of modern horror of the 20th century. I also never knew what HP stood for, so thank you for yeah. that. Okay, so my sources are Wikipedia, an article from Tor.com that's Lovecraft's most bigoted story. No, really, the horror at Red Hook. This oh, was shit. by Anne Pillsworth and Ruthanna Emery. So it's from Tor.com 2015. And then I'm going to quote a little bit from Lovecraft himself uh, from some of his short stories. Primarily, though, I'm using a book, and it was a very good book if you guys want to dive more into this. It's called In the Mountains of Madness, The Life and Extraordinary Afterlife of H.P. Lovecraft. Mm. Uh, it's by an author named W. Scott Poole from 2016. Great. So first, just a little caveat. I am going to get into the racism. I'm going to try to avoid too many direct quotes, but I am going to quote a little bit from his story, The Horror at Red Hook, so you kind of okay. know what I'm talking about. That said... I'm not going to be approaching this as like a takedown of H.P. Lovecraft. Mm -hmm. As I've said, I wrestle with his legacy and everything, but I revere a lot about his writing. He's one of the most influential writers on me and on the entire genre. So this is not a like, let's take a big dump on H.P. Lovecraft, but I'm going to take a dump on the parts that need to have a big so dump it's a, taken on them. <laughs> okay, so it's a selective, like, surgical precise dump dumping. <laughs> yeah, <Okay. laughs> exactly. Yeah. So Howard Phillips Lovecraft was born on August 20th, 1890 in Providence, Rhode Island. He was born at his mother's family home. So his mother, Sarah Susan Lovecraft, her maiden name was Sarah Susan Phillips. Hmm. Um, and she came from a very prominent family in Rhode Island. Her father, Whipple Phillips. Whipple. Yeah, right. <laughs> Great name. He was a very successful businessman man in Providence. I want, I'm going to spend some time talking about his mother. I'll get to it in a little bit, but there's a lot that's been written about H.P. Lovecraft's relationship with his mother, mm -hmm. and she's often very villainized. But this book, In the Mountains of Madness, W. Scott Poole really takes a different approach to her, and I want to talk about that when I get there. Okay. Uh, so she was one of three daughters of Whipple Phillips and Roby Phillips. She ended up marrying a guy named Winfield Scott Lovecraft. Now, he was from Rochester, New York, and he was a traveling silverware salesman which <laughs> back in the time when you, that could be a job i guess how like i'm sorry just what 
a silver a traveling silverware salesman yeah well i saw silver utensil salesman so i mean i assume okay. silverware but yeah yes and he was like fairly successful but he was of a lower social class so here's a quote from the in the mountains of madness old whipple the wealthy patriarch of an established family in the east providence yankee aristocracy looked askance at lovecraft Although born in Rochester in 1853, Winfield Lovecraft affected the English accent of his parents and apparently cut a poor figure before his future father-in-law. The shady young man had just a dash of the British dandy about him, an attitude that did not comport well with his occupation as a commercial traveler, quote-unquote. In fact, he does seem a shadowy figure as the details of his life before his marriage to Sarah Susan Phillips have remained obscure even to some incredibly detailed genealogical investigations undertaken by Lovecraft enthusiasts. None of this could have served to give Whipple much confidence in the match. Now, this whole thing about him being a dandy is interesting because this is going to come up when I talk about Lovecraft's relationship, H.P. Lovecraft's relationship with his grandfather. Apparently, this Victorian era was like the real birth of this idea of manliness. And we're kind of getting into the late Victorian era. This yeah. is around when Teddy Roosevelt's out there, you know, shooting uh, bears shooting and bears and riding lightning bolts. And <laughs> yeah, being Teddy Roosevelt, basically. <laughs> and so I think this idea of Winfield being this quote unquote dandy, you know, that this is going to come up in the ways that Whipple tried to sort of mold his grandson pretty unsuccessfully, I'll say. Okay. But apparently these suspicions about Winfield were probably somewhat accurate about him being sort of a shadowy character because, you know, Susan married him in 1889. They moved to Boston and then, you know, he was fairly successful as a salesman. So they ended up moving into like the suburbs of Boston. Boston, they bought a house in a town called Auburndale. And then Winfield went on a business trip to Chicago and had a meltdown. This is also from that book. Quote, the chambermaid has insulted me. Brutal men are raping my wife upstairs. I can hear her cries. Oh, God. W.S. Lovecraft came running out of his hotel room screaming these words or some approximation of them on the night of April 21st. Hotel management called in a local doctor who sedated him. The Lovecraft's medical records note that he remained, quote, noisy and violent for two days. What? Doctors administered enough drugs, possibly morphine, to render Lovecraft unconscious. This enabled Whipple Phillips to take him to Providence and place him in Butler Hospital. He died there five or years later oh so what happened was that winfield lovecraft had syphilis oh he had it at, <laughs> that we don't know. was a twist yeah i was not expecting that yep yeah no he had syphilis and, and specifically tertiary syphilis which causes can cause extreme dementia and mental mm. illness whipple put him in butler hospital paid for his care but he was sort of locked away he became like the dirty family secret and at the time howard was about three or four years old Oof. um I think when I get into talking about H.P. Lovecraft's bigotry, I think a lot of it's going to trace back here. It's not clear whether he ever visited his father while his father mm -hmm. was institutionalized. Mm -hmm. If he would have, he would have been very young. Mm -hmm. It seems that no one was talking about or telling Howard what happened. Makes sense. But it also seems very likely that through overhearing conversations, etc., he probably had an inkling. He would never admit or tell anyone or talk about the fact that his father essentially died of syphilis. Mm. What he said in 1916, I think this was from a letter. He says, in April of 1893, my father was stricken with a complete paralysis resulting from a brain overtaxed by study and business cares. Like, not so much, Howard. I mean, <laughs> nice try. Or syphilis. One thing that pops up frequently mm 
mm-hmm. in H.P. Lovecraft's fiction is this fear of degeneracy. And this is why I mean, I think the racism is tied to this. Mm-hmm. He had a very strong preoccupation with these ideas of purity, with <sighs> keeping the white race pure, mm-hmm. etc. But also, the, it very much is an element of his story, The Shadow Over Innsmouth. But this idea that like an ancestral flaw carries down through generations and then manifests later. Yeah. I'll talk about when I talk about that story. He seemed very concerned about kind of keeping himself hermetically sealed from this dangerous world. And yeah. it just seems like this has to tie back to. Yeah. Also, H.P. Lovecraft is often referred to as being asexual. Mm-hmm. As we were just discussing with your story, we don't know this. There's also a lot of efforts to say he was a closeted gay man, and I'll get to that. There's also efforts to say, well, he was actually a pedophile. I'll get to Ooh, that. Okay. Um, what we do know, though, is that when he was kind of getting into his childhood and teens, he developed a strong interest in sex and sexuality. Mm-hmm. But it was kind of like an almost scientific interest. He started reading anatomy books and things like that. And he said, I don't have the quote written down, but he said at some point, he's like, all my reading on this subject basically killed my interest in sex. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So okay. <laughs> again, this... <laughs> this just seems like, like I'm obviously psychologizing yeah here, we're but obviously deep dealing with like some deep-seated something issues. something deep-seated around sex around disease around purity it's yeah but anyway so after winfield was institutionalized howard and his mother sarah susan moved back into the family home in providence which they shared with his grandparents and also his two aunts and it sounds like all of the phillips daughters all married very late like they're mm. all in their 30s by the time they got married which for wow. the time period what old been, maids old maids exactly yes they were just this very insular family but howard at least as the story goes howard grew very close to his grandfather so whipple was an interesting dude he was this kind of like hard charging businessman i think he had investments and in like mining interests and all all over the place but he was also a world traveler um and he would come back and tell howard his grandson these stories of his world travels and so it just mm-hmm. sparked this imagination he was a fan of like gothic literature so he would mm-hmm. synopsize all these like gothic novels he would synopsize edgar Allan poe stories and then he gave him a copy of Grimm's fairy tales and we're talking like the original Grimm's fairy tales Ooh, which are not dark. the sanitized yeah no all fair well all fairy tales honestly are very dark right <laughs> and it sounds like there was very little concern about like this is too much for this kid mm-hmm. um, they're just like want to hear a fucked up story howard and so of course little howard he's terrified of all this but he's also just all the neurons are sparking mm-hmm. um whipple also introduced to howard like a deep fascination into like classical and greek mythology and this kind of grew over time because howard would like go into the woods behind his house and play and and he became so enamored with this fantasy world that he actually built an altar to pan he decided he was a pan worshiper and he claimed that he saw like dryads and nymphs and satyrs in the woods and this i'll I'll get back to this Um, okay interestingly though his grandmother roby and there's not a whole lot written about her but she you know she was in a lot of ways a typical victorian wife you know stay at home take care of the kids but she had a deep 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 interest in science okay specifically in astronomy she died when howard was six 
So not long after his father was institutionalized Mm -hmm. and he kind of inherited all her science books. And this definitely sparked an interest in both like mythology, fantasy and sciences. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of what became like the basis for how his worldview and his fictional worldview developed over time. So here's a quote. After his grandmother died, a quote, gloom fell over the family from which it never fully recovered. This is a quote from In the Mountains of Madness. It says, Mm -hmm. Howard sought an escape from the gloom, as he often would, into worlds more fantastically dire than what he found in real life. Mm -hmm. He came across an edition of Paradise Lost containing the illustrations of Gustave Doré. These drawings are best known for their portrayal of the fall of Satan and his angels, sketched by Doré as titanic figures of immense proportions who appear like the muscled titans of Greek legend so familiar to howard from his mythological interests they also contain dark and brooding images of the rebellious lucifer sullen and embittered gathering about him hosts of flying devils to continue his unwinnable war against god lovecraft at least in some of his correspondence claimed that the combination of doré and the dark cloud of his grandmother's death started his nighttime struggles with what he called the quote night gods these creatures infested his dreams at age six and in some ways for the rest of his life coming upon him with black leather wings, giant insect-like horrors whose rubbery skin had aspects of the amphibious and aquatic world already beginning to appall this seaport boy who claimed to despise the taste and even the smell of fish. Hmm. So this kid's scared of everything. Yeah. It's just... <laughs> terrified just generally terrified. and he's plagued by nightmares apparently his entire life mm-hmm. and this will come up when he starts establishing himself as a fiction writer particularly in his dream cycle of stories mm-hmm. the night gaunts pop up in his fiction later on in life mm-hmm. this is something i deeply relate to because as a kid i was afraid of everything and i was also like i couldn't stop reading about everything that i was afraid of i think yeah. this is this is the thing stephen king has talked about where he's like everyone thinks like horror writers are like these psychopaths who like delight in murder and viciousness and gore and everything he's like most horror writers are phobics Mm. we're afraid of flying we're afraid of the reason we're drawn to this is because we're kind of trying to process some intense fears and as you know about me like i'm deeply afraid of the water as i've talked Mm -hmm. about i'm deeply arachnophobic and this just seems to be like this on steroids with howard phillips Lovecraft. Hmm. So he was a weird kid, mm-hmm. um, obviously. Hmm. He was very bookish. He would spend hours in the basement of their house conducting science experiments. His mother and grandmother really encouraged this and so they would like give him chemistry sets and things and he would go down and start mixing chemicals apparently he actually like blew up the basement at one point yes when he was a kid (laughs) but his grandfather whipple like i said was very concerned with the idea of manliness Mm -hmm. and he was very concerned that bookish little howard was not manly enough So he forced Howard to join the Providence Athletic Association in 1899. So he would have been nine years old. And apparently Howard went and had a fainting fit on his first visit and never returned again. (laughs) Okay. And this kind of thing, this will pop up again with him. More about him just being, he was like a weird and kind of difficult kid, it sounds like, in a lot of ways. So like when it comes to religion, the Phillips family, they were members of the First Baptist Church in Providence. They had been for generations. It doesn't sound like they were particularly religious, but it was just like the socially acceptable thing to do would be take your child and enroll them in Sunday school. And apparently that didn't last long because five-year-old Howard went in and started interrogating the Sunday school teacher about whether she used the word God in the same way the parents used the word Santa Claus. Um, <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> so you can imagine wow. how well you can imagine how well that went over. <laughs> yep. 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 
So according to the W. Scott poll book, he kind of says that probably by mutual agreement, he was sort of half kicked out of Sunday school and then half pulled out by his mother. Mm -hmm. What's interesting is that his mother never seemed to force anything on him. She just kind of wanted to let him be the weird kid that he was. Mm -hmm. Now, he became a committed atheist. He has a quote in, I think, one of his letters, or it's in an essay that he wrote where he's explaining his atheism. And he traces it back to this like childhood fantasy that he had where he was a pan worshiper and he thought he saw dryads and satyrs in the woods Mm -hmm. he says i firmly thought i beheld some of these sylvan creatures dancing under autumnal oaks if a christian tells me he has felt the reality of his jesus or yahweh i can reply that i've seen the hoofed pan and the sisters of the hesperian fethusa whatever that word means okay so basically what he's saying is like hey like you're deceiving yourselves the way i deceived myself when i was a little kid so when you talk about Jesus, I'm like, yeah, I also like, I worshiped Pan. Like, don't come at okay. me. Okay. <laughs> he sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> he, there's, there's, um, he sounds like a total pain in the ass. He's, yeah, he's, he's, and we're going to get deeper into his pain in the assness as we go. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, he was basically a nerd. He was an antisocial nerd. A lot has been written about how much social anxiety he had. Mm-hmm. I've heard this is definitely speculation. I'm going to put it out there, but it, because it's something people talk about, there's a lot of speculation that he might have been on the autism spectrum. Mm, okay. We don't know this. It right. seems to fit in some ways, but again, like we just need to need to take that with a grain of salt. Because relax, relax, everybody. People. Um, What we do know, though, is that he didn't get along with people very well. He didn't Mm -hmm. make a lot of friends. But the friends he did make, he seemed to hold on to with this almost like intense desperation. So as a kid, he did become friends with a pair of brothers, uh, Harold and Chester Monroe. They were kind of similarly nerdy. They were into like all the weird science stuff and everything that Howard was. So as they were getting into high school, they formed the Providence Astronomical Society, which was basically Lovecraft and these two dudes. And Lovecraft was the head of the Astronomical Society. And these brothers were his, quote, research assistants. (laughs) See, he sounds like a fucking pill. Well, he's, he's, yeah, he is. And he's just a big fucking dork. Yeah. <laughs> um, he was also like fascinated with detective stories. Okay. Um, super into Sherlock Holmes and Arthur Conan Doyle. Mm-hmm. So they also, he and these two brothers, they formed the Providence Detective Agency. Okay. All right. <laughs> um, where they would run around with <laughs> uh, magnifying glass and solve crimes. But what's Sol- itch- uh, Okay. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> Well, what's what's really what I found interesting, I'd never really thought about this before. Like Lovecraft had a deep influence on what would become geek culture. Yeah. Very deep influence, particularly on like role playing game culture. Like, yeah, everyone thinks of Dungeons and Dragons as being the sort of ripoff of J.R.R. Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings, which it is, but it also incorporates a lot of H.P. Lovecraft. And Gary Gygax, who created Dungeons & Dragons, has cited H.P. Lovecraft as a major influence. What's interesting is that essentially what Howard and his friends were is they were LARPers. Yeah. They, they were doing live-action role-play. What this detective agency was, was that they would go out and pretend to be detectives as high school students, and Howard would devise these like intricate mysteries for them to solve with props, and he would put fake blood down in abandoned buildings, and stuff so in a way it's like yeah he was a pill but also they were again i relate to this part of it because it's dorks having fun in their own <laughs> dorky little antisocial ways like yes not, yes and you're and, not and gonna I'm, get laid doing this but yeah 
<laughs> and let me be clear here. I'm not calling him a pill because he's into these things, but rather because he just, he seems a bit like a bit of a pill. And it's more about that. He's like, I'm the president and you're my researchers. Oh, this I am this, this and you were that. Like, this is a theme that will continue. <laughs> great. Fantastic. So he was antisocial in high school. He didn't have a lot of friends and he was clearly very smart, but he was not a good student. Yet another thing I relate to about him is apparently he had a deep interest in science, but he sucked real hard at math. Mm. Um, he wanted to be a scientist. He thought he would become an astronomer. That was his mm -hmm. goal. Couldn't handle the math. He started writing as a child and, and primarily poetry. Now, he's kind of famously a terrible poet. Okay. Um, even fans of his are like, mm, skip the poetry, stick to the short stories Interesting. <laughs> in the novels. Yeah. Yeah. His first creative effort as a writer was rewriting the Odyssey and then other mythological stories when he was seven and putting them in like his own poetic verse. Mm -hmm. But this interest in mythology and his fascination with science is what did ultimately form his kind of nihilistic, both his worldview and his like fictional worldview. So I'm going to take a little digression here to talk about cosmic horror. Okay. Um, which is the genre that he didn't quite invent, but he's most associated with. He kind of shaped it into what it is today. So it's primarily associated with him, but it has antecedents in like early science fiction and fantasy writers. People like Robert W. Chambers, who's most famous for The King in Yellow. If any of you folks are true detective fans, you should go and read The King in Yellow because that's sort of original source material. Also folk horror, quote unquote, folk horror writers like Algernon Blackwood and Arthur, uh, I don't know how to pronounce his name. I think it's Machen, who is a Welsh writer. Okay. So these were his initial influences and also a lot of gothic fiction. Lovecraft is often sort of said to be like an heir to Poe. And they're kind of spoken of in the same sentence, which is kind of weird to me. And it's definitely weird to this W. Scott Poole because he makes this point. There's like, it's actually not much Poe like in Lovecraft yeah. fiction, except for somewhat stylistically. Poe was deeply invested in psychology, human psychology. Lovecraft kind of, he couldn't care less about that. Um, okay. He didn't actually care much about people in general. But with this combination of his science interests, when he started really focusing on fiction writing, his goal was to kind of eliminate these like old superstitions and ideas of the supernatural. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to elevate the horror to this cosmic level. So it's not demons and ghosts and vampires. What cosmic horror is, is it focuses on the horror of the unknowable. And the incomprehensible, okay. which creates it creates its own type of dread. It's about the macrocosm of the universe contrasted to the like the little microcosm of our own lives. Mm -hmm. Various themes that pop up is like the power of forbidden or dangerous knowledge to drive one mad. Um, you see this particularly, he he was very fascinated with like grimoires and like mysterious texts and things. Mm. Um, so he created his own called the Necronomicon, which uh has popped up in pop culture up through like the evil dead movies but he was most focused on like the amorality and indifference of the universe so the thing to be aware of with like lovecraftian what we call the cthulhu mythos which by the way he never called it mm. um is that these entities like cthulhu yogg-sothoth shubnagurath like all these nyarlathotep these are not evil characters they don't care about us mm. like we are like a speck of bacteria to them you know, mm -hmm. he was deeply disturbed 
when he started learning about like the size of the universe. We've talked about it a little bit, like on the Voyager Golden Record episode, Mm -hmm. but like just a couple things to understand when we're talking about the universe. So you always hear the term light year. What is a light year? It's the amount of time it takes beam of light a year to make it past. You know, it's Mm -hmm. that distance. That equals 9.46 trillion miles. So one light year is 9.46 trillion miles. Our closest star is four light years away. Yep. Um, the known universe is about 93 billion light years in diameter. And then when you think about like the average human life is about 80 years, the universe is 16 billion years old. So these are not numbers you can even like wrap your head around. Yeah, they make um, me nervous. Yeah, I mean, I saw your face twisting up as I was talking. Um, but this is, but this, it made Lovecraft nervous too. Mm-hmm. So he centers his horror in just our cosmic insignificance. Mm-hmm. Like the theme of Lovecraft in general is that we don't matter. It's like super fun times, right? Yeah. Um, and he's like, He's like a 12-year-old when he's thinking about this stuff. Mm -hmm. So kind of in the early 1900s, like I said, his grandfather was a very successful businessman, but he got himself involved in some investments that didn't work out so well and essentially wiped out the family fortune. And then he just like months later died of a stroke. Um, Oh, <laughs> left okay. uh, Lovecraft and his mother and aunts pretty much high and dry. So they were forced to sell the the big family home. Lovecraft and his mother moved into a much smaller duplex. Lovecraft went into a deep depression and is known to have contemplated suicide. What stopped him, he claimed in later letters, was he realized if he ended his life, there were all these mysteries, these scientific mysteries that he was waiting to find out the answer to. He was like, well, I want to at least know what this means. He ended up leaving school during his freshman year of high school. Essentially, it's not really clear what happened, but he had some sort of breakdown and they just pulled him out of school. Yeah, You would never really admit to this like when in later letters he would talk about how he had been meant to go to brown university in providence but he had to withdraw because of his health and it's like well you didn't even make it that far like you didn't finish high school so yeah there's a lot about howard where he would like try to put on these airs about himself yeah when you get into just the psychology of this guy there's just lots of feelings of inadequacy So the period of roughly 1908 to 1913, which is roughly when he would have been like late high school, early 20s, is considered the quote black hole in this history because not a lot is written about it. But what's known is that he was living with his mother in this duplex. It's not really known what they were doing. And this is where Sarah Susan gets villainized by history. Okay. And so this is going to tie back to your episode recently about hysteria. Mm-hmm. People started looking at Sarah Susan as being, quote, odd. She had a friend, a woman named Clara Hess, who talked about how she would go and visit. And she said that Sarah Susan was getting odd. Howard was becoming a recluse. She said the house had a, quote, strange shut air and the atmosphere seemed weird. And then she continued, the home was an environment suited for the writing of horror stories, but an unfortunate one for a growing youth who, in a more wholesome environment, might have grown to be a more normal citizen. So, like, that word normal, yeah. Poole in his book makes a big point that this is an outgrowth of the Victorian morals of the time. Yep. And what was really going on is that Howard and his mom were weird. 
there wasn't anything necessarily wrong with them. I mean, I like Howard had his problems, but like, you know, people have tried to tell stories about them having an incestuous relationship or that she was this domineering harridan who prevented him from succeeding in life and stuff. And mm. like the actual truth is that she tried to give him as much freedom to be whoever he wanted to be and who he wanted to be was weird and antisocial. Yeah. It's not clear that that was her fault. Yeah. Um, so this Clara Hess, like she, she just like, she liked to talk later. Like yeah. After, she did them dirty. She did them dirty. So she, later on, she's saying that she would run into Sarah Susan around town and that Sarah Susan would talk about how she saw weird and fantastic creatures rushing about in the twilight. But Poole is saying, well, this, like the Phillips family, they were deeply involved in like fairy tales and things like that. And they mm -hmm. used to like to tell each other these stories and have these sort of imagined fantasy worlds. This could have just been Sarah Susan doing that. It could have been like her weird kind of sense of humor about it. Mm -hmm. And then neighbors later would gossip about how Howard and Sarah Susan would have these, quote, loud quarrels. But later on, another neighbor said they weren't having quarrels. What they were doing is that they were reading Shakespeare aloud to each other. Oh, my God. OK. Yeah. <laughs> OK. So That's a huge difference. Very huge. So here's the quote from In the Mountains of Madness. Shakespeare. In fact, the whimsical nature of their relationship and the fact that they may have taken special delight in annoying their nosy neighbors led them to read scenes of bloodletting and murder with special gusto. <laughs> the more cruel the part, the better he liked it, Bonner remembered. This is the neighbor. And would shout it out to be heard by the neighbors. I've had neighbors tell me of these quarrels, but I know it was only Shakespeare being read. So, like, there's just a lot of stuff that has just gotten twisted and twisted over the yep. years. And it's largely gotten twisted to turn Sarah Susan into a villain. Yeah. But around 1918, when Howard was, he would have been about 28 years old, she started to exhibit symptoms of a, quote, nervous breakdown. Mm. So this Clara Hess, again, doing them dirty, would say she'd run into Sarah Susan around Providence and that Susie would seem confused and disoriented, whatever that means. Maybe she just didn't want to talk to you. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of what I think. Eventually, she did go to live with her sister Lillian and then was institutionalized. Oh, well. But, <laughs> well, but I mean, I think we got to keep that, put that in context of the hysteria that you talked about. Yeah, Beca yeah. And, and uh, Scott Poole talks about this, that really what it was, was just Sarah Susan not conforming to what was expected. She wasn't, quote, mm. normal. Mm-hmm. Now, she, now, we don't know. She might have actually had mental illness. You know, there might have been something. Mm -hmm. I've seen it theorized that she may have actually had syphilis that she caught from her husband that just took longer to manifest. Yeah. All of this is possible. But I think we need to, like, keep an open mind that maybe she wasn't the... People have sort of tried to, like, characterize this relationship as, like, Norman Bates and his mother. And right. doesn't really seem like that. I think they were weird people. They were weirdos. But yeah. like there wasn't, they seemed to enjoy each other. He was very devoted to his mother. Yeah. After she was put into the institution, he would visit her every day. A lot has been made over the years about the fact that he wouldn't go into the hospital to visit her. Mm. And people have said that this is a sign that he didn't actually care about his mother. He was angry at his mother. But really, it's like he would go visit her every day and they would walk the grounds. He loved walking through Providence, yeah. you know, walking through the woods. So it's like, again, I think the, a nefarious spin has been put on that. So yeah. I just like want to be on record to say that like I am all for rehabilitating the reputation of Sarah Susan Lovecraft. Okay. Except for she was probably a racist, and that's probably partly how he got his racism. Jesus. Okay. Um, but you know, beyond that. 
He's kind of left to his devices after she kind of went into decline. He was not in school and he started self-publishing in these scientific journals. And I'm like, who the fuck was reading his scientific journals that he was and like, like, out of himself? Yeah. You know? He's just like, here's my scientific journal. And people are like, thanks, right. I guess. <laughs> he was also dabbling with fiction writing. So his first mm-hmm. known short story is uh, one called The Beast in the Cave. It was written when he was 14. Mm-hmm. It was later published in a small amateur press called The Vagrant when he was about 28. Mm-hmm. And then this ties into your story. Okay. Howard Philip Lovecraft around this time became deeply involved with what was then called amateur journalism. Mm-hmm. We got to define what we mean when we say amateur journalism. It seems likely, like the the best analogy, according to W. Scott Poole, is that this would have been like the early 20th century version of blogging. <laughs> okay. <laughs> or like fanzines, like people putting out these fanzines. And there was like an ideology behind it that was like, we are not doing this for the money. We are not doing this for profit. So this all started when he wrote a letter to the editor of one of these amateur journalists journalism blogs and basically started a year-long feud with this guy named fred jackson (laughs) sorry one of the amateur journalism blogs blogs (laughs) (laughs) it's fucking hp lovecraft's tumblr account (laughs) (laughs) one of these i guess i mean i guess what we would call fanzines yes it's like but there was this guy fred jackson he was a writer of like adventure and romance stories and he was a pulp writer um Mm -hmm. He started, you know, kind of on the level that Lovecraft did, you know, just publishing in the adventure pulps and Lovecraft never shy about sharing his opinion, wrote a letter Mm -hmm. to the editor of one of these pulp magazines criticizing his work. So this is a quote from the W. Scott Poole book. It says in 1913, Lovecraft wrote a letter to the Argosy criticizing the work of Fred Jackson, whose tales of adventure and romance appeared regularly in the pulp. His critique drew the anger of the Argosy readership and Lovecraft obviously wrote a 44 line satirical poem about the fan page in Broglio that he describes in a 1916 letter to a friend as being quote in the matter of Pope's Dunciad so just going back to your whole thing about him being kind of a pill <laughs> you know? yeah it's just like <laughs> just oh, like man. oh my god pull the stick out of your ass Howard but anyway so the- I just I just feel like there was a lot of stuff with him where he would be like I feel like HP was real like well actually and everybody's like oh He's he's definitely the king of well actually. Like yeah. think, we could just say well actually Lovecraft. <laughs> That's his name. But so to continue the quote, it says poetic satire mimicking Augustan poetry provoked more confusion than anger among Jackson's <laughs> offenders in the Argosy, but Lovecraft had managed to stir a minor tempest. Howard claimed that the next month's issue of the pulp contained nothing but quote anti-Lovecraft letters, prompting him to write quote, another satire flaying all my tormentors and stinging pentameter. That is tormentors. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Again, just a total pill. Just a total pill. It continues that his tormentors felt properly flayed by an 18th century poetic style that depended on a facility in classical literature and Latin puns for its punch seems unlikely. Yeah, I was just going to say, were they, I were they flayed? Were they properly flayed, Howard? <laughs> they were bruised. <laughs> um, oh, wow, wow. They were okay. like, well, uh-huh. I mean, I'm just going to have to revise all of my thoughts on this issue because I, I did not understand that Latin pun. Um, <laughs> but what this did do, right over. it's right over their heads. But what this did do is it did bring Lovecraft to the attention of a guy named Edward F. Doss of Milwaukee. 
So this Edward F. Doss, he was an amateur journalist. He was a big name in the amateur journalism kind of world. He was the head editor of the United Amateur Press Association. And he was impressed with Lovecraft. So he invited Lovecraft to join the UAPA. And then Lovecraft, over time, he got so involved that he actually became the vice president. And then later he became the president. So this kind of going back to like your story. Mm -hmm. This is where he comes in and decides to like talk shit about, was it Mom Chung? Yes. Yeah. No, no, no. It was um, Elsa Gridlow. Elsa Gridlow. Yes, um, the writer. You know, it absolutely makes sense because this is the world he was in. And really, there's like the parallels to today, I think, are so fascinating mm. because, like I said, he was out there LARPing before yeah. LARPing was a thing. He's <laughs> yes. essentially blogging before blogging is a thing. Mm-hmm. And then he's treating this like social media. Yeah. And like the flame war culture of social yeah. media. Like this is like we all think this is something new, like that we invented or like Facebook invented. Mm-hmm. Well, like it was going on back then. It's and, I mean, I like I'm I'm oddly reassured by that. Do you know what I mean? I know, me too, right? Like yeah. it's, there's something about like, it. That, we've like humans have always been fucking idiots. Yeah, we're no we're not really any more idiots today than we were <laughs> than we have been in the past. <laughs> yep. But, you know, there's a part of this that makes me, like I said, I don't want to do a takedown. Mm -hmm. Um, And like you said, he's a pill. And like, just think about like all these people who just like want to flame you on Twitter all the time. And it's like, Mm -hmm. oh, I'll bet you're fucking great at parties, you know? Yeah. But what do we know about a lot of this culture? This is the only outlet people have for social Mm -hmm. interaction because Mm -hmm. of social anxieties, all sorts of issues. And so it just strikes me that a lot of the things we don't like about H.P. Lovecraft Mm -hmm. um, boil down to this guy who just doesn't know how to relate to people. And so he's finding whatever avenue that he can to have. It's not that he was like Lovecraft is often described as being antisocial, but I don't think he really was antisocial. I don't think he hated people. Yeah. I think he wanted these connections and this becomes a theme throughout his life when we get into talking about his correspondences. Do you Um, think he was like, maybe, you know, had some type of like, um, (laughs) my brain would just turned off the lights. Um, (laughs) Like social anxiety rather than antisocial. Yeah. I think that that's the general consensus. And like I said, you know, people have done all sorts of wild speculation about, you know, various personality disorders he could have had. Right. Like I said, people have speculated that he might've been on the autism spectrum. We don't know. We don't know anything, but it seems the evidence points to he likely had issues with depression throughout mm-hmm. his life and mm-hmm. he likely had issues with social anxiety yeah and, and this is consistent throughout his life okay okay so through becoming super involved with this amateur journalism world he started these correspondence letter writing friendships with people often people he would never meet in life mm. one of these was a guy named maurice mo who in another amateur journal criticized hp lovecraft saying like you need to get away from the heroic couplet in poetry <laughs> and again it just like cracks me up because it's like comparing these fights to the fights we have now right <laughs> it's like i really wish you would stop with the heroic couplets and so lovecraft wrote a letter to him in response and, and this is from the scott public it says lovecraft's letter to his critic offered urged and almost bashfully begged for a friendship but he introduced himself in terms that would not immediately appeal to most <laughs> 
And so this is what Lovecraft said in his letter. He said, I ought to be wearing a powdered wig and knee breeches. He told this to Mo because he was basically saying, I will never be able to escape the rigors of Augustine poetry. Um, but then he, he added, I shan't he, give up my poetry. Right. But then he was like, but do you care for the science of astronomy? And then just launched into this whole thing about like, you know, I'm really into astronomy. Do you like astronomy? Let's talk about astronomy. Are we best um, friends now? Are we best friends now? <laughs> and it, this is just something that just comes up with him over and over and over again. You know, mm-hmm. he would, he would almost start these friendships in these kind of, like, it seemed like his way of trying to establish a friendship would be to start through trolling. Cause like okay. that's, and this even goes back to his high school experience. You know, remember yeah. he had this meltdown where they had to pull him out of school, the, some sort of breakdown, mm-hmm. but he did manage to make some friends. Yeah. And one thing I read is that, you know, he was an indifferent student. He was sort of remembered for being cool and aloof. But he developed into like a very successful, like smart ass. Mm-hmm. And so I, it seems like he found a way, like this was his way into trying to establish a social relationship. It seemed like he almost couldn't just come to people earnestly and be like, hey, you seem pretty cool. Can can we hang out? Would you like to hang out sometime? Right. Go to the Like just forming organic mall yeah. shop. Let's go, get an, let's go get an egg cream. Right. Um, <laughs> Yeah, just forming like organic relationships relationships with people. Yeah, there always had to be this like abrasive exterior. Yeah. So through amateur journalism was how he met his wife. So I'll talk more about her here in a second. It was also where he really started finding his first consistent market for his writing. And this included his fiction. So he actually, like people tend to think Lovecraft started in the pulps. But he really started in these amateur journals, these kind of fanzines, which are sort of, I guess you would say, like a level below the pulps. Like the pulps started, I believe, I didn't look it up, but I believe the pulps is like a magazine Mm -hmm. format, started in the 1800s. And really what it was was just cheap magazine. The term pulp comes from the type of paper. The quality, yeah. uh Made from wood pulp. It was just cheaper to make. But these were still professional or semi-professional markets. But these amateur journals were like, there was often no pay Mm -hmm. um so this is kind of where he started so his first published story was a story called the alchemist which i actually have not read he published that in the uapa journal i want to say that was like 1918 and a positive reaction to that sort of prompted him to keep submitting stories so he published the tomb and the story dagon uh shortly thereafter these are often seen as kind of the first proper like Lovecraftian fiction stories where he starts really getting into the themes that he would return to over time. Mm -hmm. And particularly the story Dagon, which is one of my favorite stories of his. It's very short, very simple. It's basically about a guy like during World War One, his ship was sunk by a U-boat and he ends up on a life raft and washes up on this strange island that seems to have risen from the sea and then encounters a strange Mm. entity that could be a sea monster, could be a god of some Uh sort. And it essentially drives him insane. This is a theme that he returns to over and over and over again. And actually the entity of Dagon pops Mm -hmm. up in what is probably considered his among his greatest masterpieces, mm-hmm. which is his story, The Shadow Over Innsmouth, which I'll talk more about later. Okay. Uh, he he returns to Dagon as the main, I, I don't want to say villain, but like cosmic entity or undersea entity, ancient okay. force driving okay. the story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So one thing that happened at this time, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because this is kind of my least favorite <laughs> type of Lovecraft story. Okay. <laughs> like I said, he had been plagued by nightmares his entire life. Mm-hmm. Before he sort of started what would later be known as the Cthulhu mythos, 
or mm-hmm. what he would call his yog sothery. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sort of dismissively uh-huh. like, ooh, me and my yog sothery. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> he was very, he became very interested in Freud, which is interesting. Okay. And the, the Scott Poole book talks about this, that it's, it was sort of incongruent to Lovecraft because Lovecraft hated what he saw as modernity. He hated the Victorian era, which was for him what he saw as modernity. Uh-huh. And it was, he was very rooted in like, he felt he was a man of the 18th century, you know, the, the 1700s. So his interest in Freud seems weird because Freud is very Victorian, very modern for that time. Yeah. The theory is that what made him interested in Freud is since he had been plagued by nightmares his entire life, Freud, he was one of the first who was really like, let's look into analyzing our dreams. Okay. His interest in Freud and then also his interest in an Irish writer named, uh, or a British writer named Lord Dunsany, who is more mm-hmm. more fantasy, uh, less horror, more fantasy, mm-hmm. uh, led Lovecraft to start what is generally called his dream cycle. So the dream cycle stories, okay. they're essentially a series of short stories and novels written published off and on between 1918 and 1932 they mostly kind of come before the cthulhu mythos stories but some of them kind of overlap a little bit um they're much more rooted in fantasy they describe fantastical almost like surrealistic worlds and this is before the rise of surrealism but if you read some of these dream cycle stories they're very surrealistic they're kind of equally as dark as his more typical horror stories Mm-hmm. But they're much weirder. I also find them to be much more difficult to read. <laughs> Why? Uh, uh, you know, I think for me, I am just not as interested in fantasy. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot more like world building. Mm-hmm. A lot of my draw towards horror is I like something that starts in what we recognize as the real world. And then the weirdness is introduced. Mm-hmm. When the world kind of starts weird, like it starts not in our world. I just have a harder time plugging into it. Yeah. You know, I mean, there are exceptions, obviously, like I've talked about, I love Game of Thrones and things like that. But just generally, I'm just more drawn to stuff that's rooted in like a recognizable earth. And so the Dream Cycle stories, some of the, some of the most famous ones, I'll just name a few, are The White Ship from 1919, a story called Hypnos, 1922, and then a couple kind of novella slash short novels, uh, The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath mm-hmm. from 1926. And one of the ones that is considered one of his masterpieces is The Case of Charles Dexter Ward. That's from 1927. They do cross over a little bit with what would later become the Yogg-Sothery stories, mm-hmm. particularly with the story The Nameless City from 1921. This story is the first appearance of the necronomicon which is mm, okay. uh his like i mentioned his grimoire mm-hmm. that is often referred to and i think if i remember correctly in the nameless city it's just sort of referred to like it's never explained or anything and it becomes much more part of like the lore of lovecraft later interestingly i uh, just want to talk a little bit about another one of his early stories it's a horror story and it's one everyone will know is herbert west reanimator from 1922 Okay. Now, people will mostly know this from the 1980s movie by Stuart Gordon, Gordon, (laughs) Herbert West Uh Reanimator, also known as H.P. Lovecraft's Herbert West Reanimator. Okay. I love that movie because it is fucking batshit insane. And it's actually much better than the story. Okay. The story is interesting because it's clearly Lovecraft trying to write in a style that is kind of not his own. So he's really trying to write a pulp horror story. Um, Okay. It's gory in a way that Lovecraft stuff usually isn't. It's actually kind of funny. Like it's meant to be in in like a very Lovecraft way. It's kind of funny. 
mm-hmm. in a way that like humor is not something you associate with H.P. Lovecraft stories mm-hmm. typically. It's it's this weird anomaly. So it was meant to be a parody of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. He was approached by the editor of one of these amateur journals. It was called Homebrew, which his future wife actually was also involved with Homebrew. Um, The editor basically was like, can you write us a pulp horror story? And kind of like badgered him into it. He didn't really want to write it. And Lovecraft later sort of dismissed the story as being like hack work. He had a very weird anti-commercial thing. He seemed very reluctant to want to do anything for money. Mm. So Herbert Westmanner, it's meant to be a parody of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. It is significant for a few reasons it's the first mention of the fictional miskatonic university Mm -hmm. which pops up in a lot of his later mythos stories it's kind of it's modeled on brown university in um uh, providence Mm. it's this like ivy league but there's like they do lots of research into like forbidden knowledge kind of stuff okay and basically most people probably kind of have the idea it's, it's a mad scientist story it's about a medical student who discovers a way to reanimate the dead and it's interesting in some ways because it sort of predicts the zombie movie of later right okay. it's also one of his more overtly racist stories unfortunately awesome so i'm just gonna read this is from the scott pool book because i don't want to avoid the racism mm-hmm. um, but there's a little bit of a trigger warning here about okay. some of the language i should clarify that my awesome was sarcastic scotty yeah. knows that <laughs> but we can't see your face <laughs> like, i saw yeah, you rolling and... your eyes as you said it <laughs> yeah and listeners might not might not know that about me <laughs> right <laughs> okay please continue this, this is from uh the scott pool biography he says more lurid half resurrections follow including a viciously racist passage in which a black boxer known as the quote harlem smoke becomes one of west's victims whom lovecraft describes as quote a loathsome gorilla-like thing in a face that conjured up thoughts of unspeakable congo secrets and tom-tom poundings under oh. an eerie moon and then in a comment reserved only for west's african-american victim lovecraft writes the body must have looked even worse in life Ooh. and oh. like this is the thing this is the thing that gets hard to wrestle with with some lovecraft stuff is some of the stories that i love will have a passage like that yeah and then it's like how, how do you i don't i don't know the answer to how yeah. you I, I don't like to ignore these things but it, it it makes it very complicated to be a lovecraft fan yeah okay so let's talk about his marriage which okay i'm just gonna ask you like do you think this marriage went well um I mean, I'd love to have faith in these two crazy kids. Uh, I'm going to hazard a guess at, at no. Well, you know, last week you really <laughs> you really wanted us to start trying to do more like actual love stories. <laughs> so that is not what I'm doing here. Great. <laughs> um, no, it's not. It's not as bad as you could imagine, but it was not a successful marriage. So in 1921, Howard met a woman named Sonia Green. Uh, He met her in an amateur journalism convention in Boston. She was clearly Mm -hmm. smitten with him from the start, but his feelings toward her aren't entirely clear. And this goes back to the questions around his sexuality, whether he was asexual or aromantic in some way. Okay. So it's clear that he had a lot of respect for her. He cared a lot about her, but his feelings mostly seemed to be non-sexual. And this is obviously something that ended up sort of poisoning the relationship over time. But she seems to have taken the initiative. She came to visit him in Providence in September of that year. This is 1921. And then he enjoyed walking around the city with her and showing her all his favorite antiquities, which is like his thing. Like whenever anyone would come visit him, he'd be like, let's go for a walk and look at this old church or something, you know? Mm -hmm. It's how I show up 
people when they visit Albuquerque on my favorite restaurants. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think walking through pastoral New England and looking at an old church was Lovecraft's love language. Yeah. You know, like this is, is his, yeah, it's his way of like letting you into his world. And like, yeah. this is what's important to me. And not, not bad. You know what I mean? No. Like I, I wouldn't say no to a right. walk through pastoral New England. Well, and, and it seems like, a lot of the people who corresponded with him and including Sonia, they were into this stuff too. So he yeah. wasn't like forcing this on people, yeah. you know? Now she also took him and his aunts out to dinner to the Biltmore hotel. And there's speculation that this might've been the first time he actually ate a meal in a restaurant because he was Ooh. so cloistered, you know, oh. within his family. Yeah. Unfortunately, his aunts did not like Sonia. They did mm. not approve. And it likely had to do with the fact that she was Jewish. Okay. Yeah. So here's a quote from the Scott Poole book. He says, Sonny Green probably represented the strangest and most interesting person Howard Lovecraft had ever met. A fact that goes a long way toward explaining his intense attraction to her. Most Lovecraft scholars would sacrifice a body part, at least one, in order to have the magnum opus of correspondence the duet created between 1921 and the early 30s, the time of their complete separation from one another. They only lived together in something like a traditional relationship for part of two years, but a library of letters crossed in the mail between them before and after that time. She seems to have been the only person that he, at one point, wrote to on a daily basis. At least a smattering of correspondence seems to have occurred even after she moved to California in the early 30s, correspondence stuttering and then finally ending a few years before his death. And what it appears is that at some point she burned all the letters. So yeah, her family were Russian Jewish immigrants. She came to the U.S. when she was about nine years old. She was, I think, eight or nine years older than him. Mm. And she'd actually been married before to a man named Samuel Seckendorf. Sounds like it was probably an abusive relationship. Mm. And he actually took his own life in 1916. Shit. But before that, she did give birth to a son who died in infancy. And then she gave birth to a daughter named Florence Carroll in 1902. They later became estranged when Florence Carroll told her mother that she wanted to marry her half-uncle. Yeah. And Sonia was like, not getting behind this. And apparently they never really spoke again. Hold on. Half uncle. Yeah. I'm not entirely sure what, like what part of the family that was in, but it sounds like it was a blood relative, a half uncle, not a step uncle. Not that that's much better. Um, And she was a teenager. She was like 16, I think. So that's making my brain hurt. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Like all of the ickiness, the general ickiness of this, but I'm also trying to figure out how somebody can be a half uncle. If you know, leave us a note in the comments because I'm I'm struggling to figure that one out. I mean, I guess if you're a half sibling and then that sibling's children would be your half niece and nephew. That's what I'm guessing that means. Okay. So they shared, they shared one parent as opposed to being. Probably. Okay. 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 I mean, I'm I'm guessing that's what that means. Okay. That makes, okay. Yes. Thank you. Um, But either way, like not advisable. Don't, don't marry your half uncle. Right. Like we're, we're taking a firm stand on the weirdest. Try not to like, (laughs) yeah, try not to marry anybody that you're related to by blood. Yeah. Um, it's not going to go well. I don't um, think so. Now, I don't know really what became of Florence Carroll, the daughter. It's that apparently she did become a successful journalist in her own right. And okay. she went by the name Carol Weld. Okay. Um, and there's a whole Wikipedia page about her. So, but I didn't read it because I didn't want to go <laughs> too far down that rabbit hole. But she went out and did shit. 
So, okay. you know, good for her. Sonia was also a pulp writer and she wrote her own like horror sci-fi type stories, some of which were revised by Howard, like revised and edited by him. So they actually kind of collaborated. She's most famous for a story named The Horror at Martin's Beach, which he had revised and edited and then was published in Weird Tales as The Invisible Monster. This is a thing that happens a lot with Lovecraft is he'll come up with an, a title and then Weird Tales will be like, nope, and just slap another yeah. title on. <laughs> um so again from the scott pool book quote the question of lovecraft's sexuality an uncomfortable one for many biographers can't be ignored when describing his marriage to sonia scholarship on lovecraft has defended his heterosexual inclinations with vigor and just as urgently insisted that sex had very little meaning for him in many descriptions of him by contemporaries, defenders, and apologists, he becomes ephemeral as a sexual being, abstracted from the desires that drive us, consciously or not, through much more of our lives than we'd like to believe. Sony Green made opaque, in fact, absurdly and almost satirically ambiguous comments about this very private matter, private at least to her as his ex-wife, if not to anyone who wants to make sense of the man into his work in a historical context. Green gives little away, even as she provides a series of anecdotal remembrances written by someone still clearly in love with a strange man who had passed wraith-like in and out of her life. Mm. So there's one story where in one of the, uh, in a letter, I think that she wrote to somebody else, she describes how they put on some records and she started dancing to the dance macabre. Mm-hmm. And that seemed mm-hmm. to kind of get him going a little bit. <laughs> this fucking dude yeah i mean and he was into what he was into man yeah i (laughs) (laughs) if my if i had a friend who was dating hp lovecraft i would be like fucking dump him like this dude's the worst yeah I mean, and then they'd be like, yeah, but I like put on some sexy music and like started dancing. <laughs> and I think he was into it. I'd be like, this is, yeah. look, it's just, I, it yeah. sounds like, <laughs> it sounds like there may have been a way to like, you know, tickle his fancy, so to speak. But like, it just seems like a lot of work and it was very specific. <laughs> so, <laughs> just like, <laughs> yeah, the, 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 the manner in which to ring his bell was, uh, just, was a puzzle. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) But they did get married. And I do want to say, like, everything I've read, it sounds like he deeply cared for her. He just did not know how to be a husband or a partner. They got married. They moved to Brooklyn. A lot has been written about how much Lovecraft hated New York. Mm -hmm. And I'll get to that. But his initial experience after moving to New York was positive. He was really excited to move to New York because he thought, you know, it was going to be the sophisticated city. He was going to be like in this world of like artists and writers and, you know, all that. And he was to a degree, but it kind of curdled over time. During his time in New York was when he really started publishing. Like he was actually really successful in his first years in New York. Mm -hmm. Publishing stories like The Rats in the Walls. Another one of my favorite stories that has some unfortunate racial stuff in it. A story called The Hound. This is when he published Dagon. Or he might have republished Dagon. Uh, at this point. Mm -hmm. These were mostly written before he moved to New York. While he was in New York as a writer, he was busy with kind of two things. He was writing a book-long essay, which is very famous. I'll talk a little bit about it a little later. I won't spend a lot of time on it, but he he wrote a book-long essay. (laughs) Sorry. I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm just laughing because like every couple of seconds, you're like, I'll I'll get back to that. And I'm like, fuck, okay. If you guys guys haven't figured it out, I have a lot to say on H.P. Lovecraft. I'm trying 
trying to pick and choose like what to focus on but he did write this book length like essay it's called supernatural horror in literature and it's kind of his manifesto on like his philosophy of horror fiction Mm. at the time he wasn't really no one was calling it horror fiction Uh, it was more properly known as weird fiction it's an interesting it's hard to it's like a lot of lovecraft it's it's a project to get through but it's interesting so i'll just Mm -hmm. leave it at that for you horror fans if you've not read supernatural horror and literature it's worth a look but he mostly was commissioned by weird tales to ghost write a biography for harry houdini and he and houdini ended up becoming very good friends through this process it was after houdini had sort of entered into this collaboration with weird tales which like most pulps was kind of like right on the bubble of like collapsing at any given time. Mm-hmm. Then they bagged the star, Harry Houdini. And so they were like, let's fucking milk this for all it's mm-hmm. worth. Mm-hmm. So Houdini, he wrote a column for weird tales called ask Houdini. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he would put his name on a lot of stories that were actually ghost written by other unnamed pulp authors. So it'd be like, here's a piece of weird fiction by Harry Houdini, the famous magician. And it was like, he just put his name on it. Mm. He might have been like, I had an idea about this. And then someone would go off and write it. And that's kind of how this biography that Lovecraft did for him worked. It basically tells a story of how Houdini had gone to Egypt and then had gotten kidnapped and imprisoned in like a shaft known as Campbell's tomb. Okay. This was in 1910. It's all bullshit. <laughs> okay. That d- did not happen. He did visit Egypt that year, but he stayed for less than a day and then got on a boat and went to Australia. <laughs> so, but he had this whole crazy story about being trapped in this mm. tomb by mysterious kidnappers. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the story ends with Houdini waking up and realizing it was all a dream. Okay. So it was like Houdini's weird dream about being mm-hmm. trapped, <laughs> trapped in a fucking tomb. Okay. Um, even though it was described as being a collaboration, it was written by Lovecraft. Like, I think Houdini was like, wouldn't it be cool if I got kidnapped and thrown in a tomb? Anyway, Howard, go write this shit. Mm. And then Howard was like, this sounds good, Houdini, and went and did his thing. He wrote it longhand. He H.P. Lovecraft apparently hated typing. Like, one of the things that people have focused on with Lovecraft, you know, where people talk about possible issues of mental illness or things like that, mm-hmm. is he had, it sounds like a version, some form of phonophobia. He oh. hated sound. And this oh, was so one, yeah, the typewriter would drive him nuts. So the typewriter drove him nuts. This is also probably one of the things he hated about New York, is mm-hmm. how loud it is. So he would write everything longhand. And then, so this Houdini biography, he handed off to Sonia and she typed it up for him. And they did it while they were on their honeymoon. Weird Tales published it saying that it was a quote biography of Houdini, but really it's, it's a Lovecraft story. It's, it's, it's cosmic horror. It's got elder gods, deals with Egyptian mythology trapped in a tomb. I mean, it is Mm -hmm. a Lovecraft story. Mm -hmm. He titled it under the pyramids. But then the editors of Weird Tales called it Imprisoned with the Pharaohs. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Nope. Imprisoned (laughs) with the Pharaohs. Yeah. And I do got to say, like, a lot of times the Lovecraft titles are a little like, okay, like you're trying to be like real artsy fartsy with this. And sometimes just the pulpy, like Imprisoned with the Pharaohs gets to the point a little bit more clearly. What, What was Lovecraft's title for it? Under the Pyramids. Which isn't terrible, but it's a little like who cares? Yeah, I will. I will say, "Imprisoned by the Pharaohs" has got some it's got, got some a little, to it. A little juice to it. 
Yeah. Um, so it appeared in the summer issue of Weird Tales during his first year of marriage. So I'm guessing this was 1924. Now, Sonia was the breadwinner of this family. So this is another thing where I was saying your story is like a deep contrast to mine, mm-hmm. is how hard you talked about her working. Mm-hmm. A lot has been written about H.P. Lovecraft's, quote, failure to launch as an adult Mm. i mean he was never successful in his lifetime he was almost penniless up to the end because the family lost this fortune he just kind of never got out of his own way Uh. um he really seems like he wanted to be like this man of leisure and letters you know right right but it's like you need money to do that yeah somebody needs to (laughs) bankroll that right hp yeah and but i think this has to go back to his social anxiety Like, he just Mm -hmm. seemed to avoid trying to get a job. But while he was in New York, he did develop this group of male friends, a lot of whom were writers, one of whom, a guy named James F. Morton, was actually a, like, civil rights activist and, like, lived in Harlem and was, like, all about, like, equal rights for Black people. Mm -hmm. I believe he was a white man. And so, like, there's a lot of things with Lovecraft where when it comes to, like, the racism and stuff, I always wonder, not to excuse it, but, like, how deep-seated was it versus how much of it was a pose? And I don't think we know the answer to that. Yeah, I mean, I was also kind of, I want, and I want to be very careful about how I say this because it, it... because one, it's like all part of, right? It's like all part of the pyramid of white supremacy. Right. Right. And I'm in no way saying that one is like better than the other. Like if you must be a racist, try to choose one of the lesser tiers of racism. Right. Right. Um, but, you know, there's definitely, you know, people who are out there burning crosses and and being part of the clan and, and doing all mm-hmm. that stuff. And then there's also people that are ugh, and it, like this, uh, this fucking feels gross to say, but to be like, I don't think that they're bad. I just think that they're less than. Mm-hmm. And and again, one is not better right. than the other. Well, and then there is the I mean, we've talked about this a lot with like incel culture. Right. Online troll culture, meme culture, 4chan, 8chan culture. That there right. is this like shock value racism that's just to like, it's the quote ironic racism that's like thumbing its nose mm. at societal mores, you know? Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, what this does is it tends to transition into actual racism over time. Right. And I just, there's something about Lovecraft that feels a little bit like that to me. Mm, interesting. He really liked to affect this pose. He would, in his later correspondences, he would be in like in his 30s and he would refer to himself as grandpa. Okay. He liked to think of himself as this strange, like a feat pre-Victorian creature, you know? Yeah. Like, you know, and it goes back to the whole thing about like, I will never give up on my Augustine poetry you know like there is just an element of performance to it that like I said I don't think excuses it and I do think his racism does transition if there was an element of a pose here it does transition into actual like Mm -hmm. um deep-seated racism mm-hmm. over time so this group was called the Calum club it was basically his this is another thing that people talk about when they try to make the argument that lovecraft may have been a closeted gay man mm. is that he had these very intense homosocial relationships Mm, intense relationships with men Mm -hmm. i'll get to one towards the end of the story that is very important Mm -hmm. i don't see a lot of evidence to point to him being gay okay not that it's not possible i it seems more to me that it all relates to the social anxiety there was something you know he was in a household raised by women raised by his mother and his aunts there was something 
he was like attaching himself to about ideas around masculinity that I have to, and again, I'm pop psychologizing. I understand that I always wonder how much of this traces back to his grandfather trying to make him manly. Yeah. Yeah. Because he would kind of be whoever you wanted him to be in a weird way. Like there was just Mm -hmm. definitely a performance aspect to all of these friendships. Um, So Mm -hmm. this group was called the Kalem club. They did not like Sonia. They did not like the attention that he had to pay to her. They seemed to resent her. They've all like talked a lot of shit about her after they got divorced. Mm. And so there was an element of like, they helped drive the wedge mm-hmm. in this relationship. Other things that kind of spoiled the marriage. Uh, she tried to start a millinery business. It failed. She had more money. She had more family money than he did. It sounds like mm-hmm. she lost a su- substantial chunk of it. Mm-hmm. So this put more pressure on him to try and find work. Mm-hmm. He again, did everything he could not to get hired at a job. He like applied for a job to test lamps, but then wrote this like letter that was written in like this very like elevated, you know, poetic prose to try and get the job. It was like, they just want something to test some fucking lamps, dude. Yeah. You know, so it was like, he would sabotage himself. He wouldn't show up. Like people like Houdini tried to set him up with a job interview and he didn't even show up. He was just doing everything he could not to have to do that. Yeah. Sonia would talk about how frustrated she was that her husband, quote, made only a pittance while revising the work of what she considered to be lesser writers. It also appears that his prejudices interfered with the marriage. She was Jewish. Yeah. would like say anti-Semitic things. She would point out, hey, you know, I'm Jewish. She'd be like, well, I don't mean you. And it's like, that doesn't. Yeah, but you mean everyone I'm related to. Like, that doesn't get you far. He would tell her things like, well, I don't mind you being here when we have friends over, but I would like more Aryans than non-Aryans at this dinner party. You know, like. Dump him immediately. Yeah. (laughs) Please, Sonia, get out of this relationship. Well, she does. Okay. Good, Good for her. So the strain on her health eventually put her in the hospital. Like just the strain of this failing marriage Mm. uh, created a stomach disorder. She ended up in the hospital. He would go visit her, but then he would be, he would only visit her in times where he wasn't supposed to be going and hanging out with the Calum club. Um, She ended up leaving the hospital early and then went to stay on a farm in Somerville, New Jersey. And then when she came back to Brooklyn, she told him, she said, okay, I took a job in Ohio, so you're going to have to kind of fend for yourself. Mm-hmm. She did send him an allowance for a while, but he had to, they split up all their possessions. He had to move into like a studio apartment in a rougher neighborhood. And this is where the racism really seems to have taken a turn. And this is still in New York? This is in New York. Okay. So he was horrified by how multicultural New York was. And he really missed the sort of pastoral life of a white man in Rhode Island. Mm -hmm. This is when he wrote what is largely considered to be his most overtly racist story. Um, It's one a lot of people will have heard of. It's called The Horror of Red Hook. Mm -hmm. Came out in 1925. It's also like beyond the racism, a really bad story. Like it's badly written. It's Mm -hmm. just not, it's, there's nothing to recommend about it. This is from the Scott Poole book. And it's kind of talking about the racism of the story with a little bit of a little bit of a synopsis of the story itself. So he says, Dublin born Thomas Malone is a writer playing a detective in New York. When a nasty case in the Brooklyn neighborhood of Red Hook earns him a rest cure in bucolic Pascoeg, Rhode Island. Unfortunately, he wanders into a village with one commercial street. It's brick buildings reminiscent of Red Hook send him into shrieking panic. 
Locals wonder that a fellow so robust should succumb to hysterics. What happened in Red Hook? Well, first off, Syrian and Spanish, Italian and Negro elements have turned the trim resort of sea captains into a, quote, maze of hybrid squalor in a tangle of material and spiritual putrescence. So that kind of gives you a sense of why you probably should stay away from this story. Yeah. I do want to mention, though, I've talked about this before, where I think one of the most effective ways as a fan of Lovecraft is to kind of try and like be in conversation with him. Mm. One of my favorite books of recent years was written by a guy named Victor Laval. It's called The Ballad of Black Tom. And it's a retelling of the horror of Red Hook from a black perspective. And Victor Laval is a black writer. Mm-hmm. Um, when that book came out, I read The Ballad of Black Tom. And then I went back and reread The Horror of Red Hook. And I was like, oh, just just throw that one away and just stick with the ballad of black tom it's a great reinterpretation and kind of reclaiming of this story Mm -hmm. um so like i said sony was sending him an allowance for a while but he eventually reached out to his aunts and told her or told them that he wanted to move back to providence they did not get divorced right away and in fact sony was planning to move to providence with him and she even said hey i can buy a house for us and for your aunts, they can live on one floor, we, we can live on the other. And this just pissed his aunts off. And, and it seems to have been the final nail in the coffin of the relationship. And like I said, I mean, no one really knows what his aunts hated so much about her, but I have to think it was because she was Jewish. I like, mean, his, his, racism, his bigotry didn't come from a vacuum you know mm-hmm. so he ended up moving in with his aunts and then he kind of became something of a shut-in so let's talk about late period lovecraft this is when the lovecraft that we know is born this is where most of my favorite stories of his come from this period so he returned to new england and he became very prolific as a writer so this is when the classics like pickman's model in 1927 the color out of space 1927 recently made into a nicholas cage movie from last mm last couple years which is it's an interesting movie it's got some inappropriate cage rage in it but it's definitely it's kind of like it's a solid interpretation of the color out of space but Mm -hmm. the cage rage is super distracting Mm -hmm. we're just like why is he acting like that i don't know right um this is when he wrote the call of cthulhu which everyone that's the one people most people know is 1928 the dunwich horror 1928 at the mountains of madness 1931 and then my personal favorite the shadow over insmith so i'm just gonna read because everyone has heard of cthulhu mm-hmm. everyone has seen the little like bumper stickers and stuffy dolls and everything of cthulhu mm-hmm. here is lovecraft's description of cthulhu from the call of cthulhu okay so it lumbered slobberingly into sight and gropingly squeezed its gelatinous green immensity through the black doorway into the tainted outside air of that poison city of madness. The city being the city of Ralea, which is the sunken city where dead Cthulhu waits dreaming. Anyway, poor Johansson's handwriting almost gave out when he wrote this. Of the six men who never reached the ship, he thinks two perished of pure fright in that accursed instant. The thing cannot be described. There is no language for such abysms of shrieking and immemorial lunacy, such eldritch contradictions of all matter, force, and cosmic order. A mountain walked or stumbled. God, what wonder that across the earth a great architect went mad, and poor Wilcox raved with fever in that telepathic instant. The thing of the idols, the green sticky spawn of the stars, had awakened to claim his own. The stars were right again, and what an age old cult had failed to do by design a band of innocent sailors had done by accident after vigintillions of years great cthulhu was loose again and ravening for delight 
Mm. And like, I just wanted to read that because that is like the most Lovecrafty thing that has ever Lovecrafted. Mm-hmm. Like that is how he writes. <laughs> and like, I love it mm-hmm. when it works. Mm-hmm. But man, I understand why some people don't like H.P. Lovecraft. Mm-hmm. It is a very particular style of writing. What's funny is I was reading it, like you had the look on your face that you did when I was playing the death metal songs. <laughs> it is, it is, let's just say H.P. Lovecraft is an acquired taste. So this is around when he published Supernatural Horror and Literature, which he had written while he was in New York. And this is when the like the cult of Lovecraft really started to take off in the pulps. He had started consistently publishing in pulp magazines by this point, especially Weird Tales. That's who he's most associated with. And he had like a weird like frenemy relationship with the editor of weird tales who would like always reject his stories mm-hmm. and then like a year later would accept them and publish them with no changes so it was just it was just like a weird flex okay. i think yeah yeah and this is when he really started his correspondences with other really popular pulp writers of the time so some of these writers include clark ashton smith who is sort of the, a writer most otherwise associated with the Cthulhu mythos, mm-hmm. except for August Derleth, who I'm going to talk about in a second. He became very good friends with Robert E. Howard. Robert E. Howard is, of course, the creator of uh, Conan the Barbarian. And my favorite of these early pulp writers was Robert Block. He started as a Lovecraftian kind of acolyte. Mm-hmm. He was much, I think he was a teenager at this point. Lovecraft was getting into his 40s. Mm-hmm. Robert Block later, obviously, became most known for the novel Psycho, which, of course, ah. became the Hitchcock film. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of the birth of what would become the Cthulhu mythos, because mm-hmm. this is through their these correspondence friendships. Lovecraft kind of started encouraging this culture of them sort of fan fictioning each other. Mm. They would work elements of each other's mythologies into their own stories. Okay. So like Robert E. Howard would ref- actually refer to Cthulhu in some of his Conan stories. Okay. Lovecraft would also take things from their story. So like he took the god Sathagua, I don't, I don't even know how to pronounce that, and worked it into his own fiction, notably The Whisper in the Darkness. He took that from Clark Ashton Smith. Clark Ashton Smith is a very interesting writer, too. He's kind of a better writer than Lovecraft. Mm-hmm. He's much more, like, poetic. So if you have not read Clark Ashton Smith, but you like this kind of cosmic horror, yog sothery, check him out. Okay. I don't know why I'm saying, okay, like I'm like I'm going to do that. <laughs> yeah, you're not. I, I Sorry, everybody. <laughs> I will not be doing it. But you all, please do if that's your yeah. if that's your bag of beans or whatever the fucking phrase is. <laughs> <laughs> and Clark Ashton Smith, like everyone kind of knows Robert Black. Everyone knows Robert E. Howard. Clark Ashton Smith is like not nearly as well known, but he's pretty revered amongst horror fans. So mm. and all of his stuff still in print. You can like he's easy to find. Now, what's interesting is this idea of the Cthulhu mythos. This is something that came later, and I'm going to talk about it. Lovecraft himself never called it the Cthulhu mythos. Like I said, he referred to it kind of derisively as Yog sothery mm-hmm. He never tried to create any sort of consistent mythology or like theology of mm-hmm. the stories. Because Lovecraftian horror, it's a it's associated with these what are called the outer gods, figures like Cthulhu, Yog sothoth uh, Azatoth, you know, all these cosmic entities that would descend to earth for some reason and drive us mad mm-hmm. they were rarely described it was never clear what their connection to each other was mm-hmm. he was kind of almost using them randomly this to me is when lovecraftian fiction works best is when it's left because the whole idea is it's this stuff's unknowable we can't understand it so you get little hints of it little glimpses of it you know mm-hmm. this would change over time after he died so now it's time to talk about 
the last two important figures in his life. I promise, folks, we're about to wrap this up here. <laughs> he met through, again, through correspondence, he met and befriended two younger fans, kind of after he moved back to Providence, getting into the 1930s. One of whom was a guy named Robert Barlow, and another was a guy named August Derleth. So let's talk about Robert Barlow first. This is a tricky relationship to talk about because this mm. is where some of the accusations after the fact that Lovecraft might have actually been a pedophile come from this oh. relationship. Robert okay. Barlow reached out to H.P. Lovecraft for an autograph when he was 13 years old. And, he, and they became close friends when he was a teenager and Lovecraft was in his 40s. Lovecraft even went down to Florida where Barlow lived and stayed with his family for a while. Then when the family was preparing to move to the Midwest, I think his dad was in the military and got transferred to like Kansas or Missouri or something. Mm -hmm. But they said, go visit your friend Lovecraft for a while. And so Barlow actually went and stayed with him in Providence. Again, teenager. Barlow was gay. He was never out in his lifetime. Later on, he became a anthropologist and a professor. He worked at the Mexico City College and his area of expertise was like Aztec culture. And the Nahuatl, am I saying that right? Nahuatl language? Nahuatl. Mm-hmm. Nahuatl. I have no expertise in that. I believe that is how you say that. Just yeah. <laughs> disclaimer. Right. Nahuatl. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He was a very like respected professor. He ended up taking his own life in 1951 when a former student who was upset with him threatened to out him. Oh, no. So the fact that he was a teenager, that he was gay, that he had this close friendship with H.P. Lovecraft, that Mm. he would visit Lovecraft, Lovecraft would visit him, all sorts of speculation about it. Mm. I want to leave room for that speculation, but I see very little evidence that there was anything sexual in that relationship. Mm -hmm. Barlow spoke fondly of Lovecraft throughout his life, spoke fondly of this friendship. Mm -hmm. He never said or indicated anything. It's possible that he might have had a crush on Howard. Mm -hmm. But when he went and visited Barlow's family, he stayed with his family and hung out with the family. Mm-hmm. When Barlow came up and visited him, he was staying with Lovecraft and his aunt, you know, mm-hmm. and the three of them would hang out. His aunt was very fond of Barlow. It was, all, it was The relationship sounds much more familial to me. Uh-huh. So if anyone out there has any information that I'm missing or that I missed, uh, I'm open to hearing it. But I think this is the type of speculation that is very dangerous. Like, we know he was a racist. Like, there's no talking around that. Mm-hmm. You know, and people will try to talk about, well, he was a man of his time. And but Scott Poole makes the point in his book that, like, yeah, but also this was the time of the Harlem Renaissance. This was the time of the NAACP. Right. Like, he doesn't actually have that excuse. Yeah. So, yes, he was a racist and a vicious racist. I think it's dangerous to start being like, and he was also a pedophile, which is something you see pop up. We don't know that that's a fact. So, mm-hmm. just want well, to... Well, and, and racism is monstrous enough on its own. It actually doesn't need the, the like, the bullet point of being a pedophile yeah. to, to make it well, more... <laughs> Well, this, again, goes back to your story. Like, all the speculations about her and Mm her, you know, was she a lesbian? Was she? We don't know. And, like, stop trying to imprint something onto this person when you don't have the evidence. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it is an interesting thing because, like, um, I think that we are currently living in a time, and maybe this has always been true. Uh, Maybe it's naive of me to, to try to put it to this time period. But everybody's, everybody's very obsessed with labels. Yeah. And, like, I get it. I get the idea of wanting to claim labels for yourself. And also just, it's that we have a dear friend who tells me that all the time, like 
nobody is allowed to put a label on you besides yourself. Like you yeah. decide your labels. Right. Um, and the same is true for everybody else as well. Like yeah. we, I know that there are people that we want to claim for our communities or maybe not in mm-hmm. this particular case, but yeah. Well, yeah. since like, I, let me clarify I am not drawing any equivalence between being a lesbian and being a pedophile. No. Yes, yeah. of course. Yeah. And um, that's, I mean, that's, yeah, that's a little bit of the thing that I, I, I want to be clear in what I'm saying as well. But what I think but, happens is either people try to claim someone to their identity label sometimes, yes. or they try to push someone out of their identity label into another one. Right. To demonize them. Right. And again, being a vicious racist is bad enough. Yeah. And like, you know, his racism is what it is. It's something we as fans struggle with. Like I said, my favorite approach to handling that racism is not to try and make excuses for it, but to do what Victor Laval did in the Ballad of Black Tom. Take it on. Take it on head on. You know, you don't have to not be a Lovecraft fan, but you do have to acknowledge this history, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. But to take some, I think, pretty specious evidence to further demonize him, I'm not comfortable with that. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I don't know what that relationship with Robert Barlow was. Right. But what is clear is that he and Barlow were very close. Mm-hmm. The other person that Howard met through correspondence at the time was a guy named August Derleth. Derleth was an aspiring writer from Wisconsin. He ended up being much more prolific than Lovecraft. He published in multiple genres. He wrote like young men's adventure fiction. He wrote Westerns. He wrote crime fiction. Their relationship was much more aloof. They talked a lot about publishing, about the business side of writing in their Mm. letters. And Derelith kept kind of trying to insert himself as like a collaborator for Mm. Lovecraft. So for instance, one story is that this is from the Scott Poole book. In early 1932, so this is before Lovecraft died, Derleth offered unnecessarily to revise one of Lovecraft's masterpieces, The Shadow Over Innsmouth. Derleth inexplicably disliked this story now much beloved by Lovecraft fans and believed it needed more action. Lovecraft politely refused this offer, telling his impetuous young friend that, quote, you doubtless realize yourself that a second person's changes cannot help destroying something of the homogeneity of a piece of writing. No other person can quite duplicate the mood of the original author. Lovecraft politely added that in any case, quote, the trouble for you would be enormous, and then dropped the matter. Lovecraft never submitted this story for publication, mm-hmm. but he had sent it to Derleth. Derleth then turned around and sent it to Weird Tales without Lovecraft's permission. Weird Tales published it. Lovecraft didn't know that they were going to publish it until they reached out to him and said, hey, here's your contract for this. So he didn't steal credit for it, but he was Mm -hmm. overstepping bounds. I just want to make it real clear. Dareleth is rightly seen as like the villain of the Lovecraft legacy story. So, but they did stay in correspondence during his last years. Lovecraft, like I said, he was practically penniless. He was subsisting on an inheritance that he was just like blowing through. He had lost a bunch of weight because he didn't want to pay for food because he wanted to keep money so he could buy postage for all the letters he was writing. What's very clear about Howard Lovecraft is that to him, the the correspondences were far more important to him than the fiction. Yeah. Because that's where his relationships were. Yeah. He remained very right wing. I mean, like I said, he sort of played the role of like the New England conservative. Mm -hmm. Um, And early on, he did apparently express a sort of qualified admiration for fascism. Mm -hmm. This did change, though. (laughs) And actually, in the last years of his life, his politics moved sort of drastically to the left. 
Mm-hmm. I'm not sure he really ever lost the racism, but he did become a staunch supporter of FDR and the New Deal. Mm-hmm. I think it was probably just because of the economics of the Great Depression was sort of pushing everyone that direction. Yeah. So The Shadow of Aaron Smith was published as a novella in 1936. Uh, I think this is the novella. This is the publication that Lovecraft sort of didn't really agree to that derelict kind of spearheaded mm-hmm. and it pissed him off because it was just like filled with like errors like typesetting errors oh. and then he published what he saw as his masterpiece and what i think is one of his masterpieces which is the novel at the mountains of madness fans didn't like it and so this was just very dispiriting to him and so at the mountains of madness was kind of the end for him he did publish a few more things but clearly he had kind of lost his taste for it Mm-hmm. Um, so his last published story was The Hunter of the Dark. It was also published in 1936. I think at the Mountains of Madness uh, was published like maybe in the last year of his life. Uh, but The Hunter of the Dark was published in 1936. And it actually grew out of like a friendly rivalry with Robert Block, who, like I said, wrote, later would write Psycho. So mm-hmm. Robert Block, he's known for like his kind of tongue in cheek sense of humor that he brings into a lot of his stories. And he had actually written a story called The Shambler from the Stars. And he actually created a character based on H.P. Lovecraft, who he then killed off in the story. So the fans loved it. And they wrote letters saying, H.P. Lovecraft, you should do the same thing to Robert Block. H.P. Lovecraft wrote a sequel to Shambler from the Stars called The Haunter of the Dark. And he created a character named Robert Blake that was modeled on Robert Block and mm-hmm. killed him. <laughs> okay. So it was like it was like a friendly kind of mm-hmm. thing, you know. And then Robert Black wrote another sequel later called The Shadow from the Steeple. It was published in 1950 and it was published as a tribute to H.P. Lovecraft. Another thing that was very deeply dispiriting to him was when Robert E. Howard committed suicide. So Robert mm-hmm. E. Howard, again, like I said, known for Conan more than anything else. He also had a very intense relationship with his mother. He lived in Texas. She was very sick, I think, with cancer. She was like mm-hmm. right on the edge of death. He told his father, I have no intention of outliving my mother. And he went and shot himself. And she died like two or three days later. Shit. So that really just set Howard back. Yeah. Around this time, he had mentioned in correspondence that he was suffering from what he called the grip, which he described as being like the flu. Mm -hmm. But over time, it worsened. So he finally went to the doctor and was diagnosed with advanced cancer of the small intestine. Uh, And he died a month later on March 15th, 1937. He was 46 years old. What year? 1937. Ooh, okay. Now this is where things get a little sticky. Lovecraft, right before he died, he wrote up a will. And he made it very clear in this will that he wanted Robert Barlow to be his literary executor. So he left the rights of all but like a couple stories to him. Sent him all of the original manuscripts. Robert Barlow, when he heard that Lovecraft was sick, and I think he was still a teenager. He heard that Howard was sick, got on a bus, tried to make it to Providence before Howard died, made it, I think, like a few days after. I think he made it even after the funeral. Mm. Um, August Derleth wasn't wasn't having that. So August Derleth, he, through a lot of like shenanigans and intimidation, Mm -hmm. managed to wrestle the rights of the stories to himself. And the way he did this, it sounds like, is he went to the pulp magazines and was like, I'm going to buy the rights to this story from you. And they'd be like, cool, because whatever, free money. They didn't have the rights to the stories. The rights had reverted to HP. But, you know, who's going to argue this? You know, Robert Barlow's teenage boy, you know? Yeah. Um, So Derleth gets the, quote, rights to the stories. And he created a publishing company called Arkham House. Um, This is where most people, like the second wave of Lovecraft fans, discovered Lovecraft was through the Arkham House editions. So Derleth put out an anthology in 1939 called The Outsider and Others. And it had, I think... 
if not all, almost all of Lovecraft's published work in it. And then he would just keep putting out these anthologies of Lovecraft stories. If anyone else tried to do anything with Lovecraft's work, even refer to them, you know, the way like Lovecraft had this kind of fan fiction-y approach, mm-hmm. like they would all kind of trade. Derleth put a stop to that. He would threaten to sue. He even threatened to sue Sonia Green, Lovecraft's ex-wife. There was like a rumor that she was planning on writing a biography or like an autobiography of her relationship with him. She got a nasty letter from August Derleth, basically being like, I will sue you into the ground if you do this. And she kind of wrote back and was like, hey, like, leave me the fuck alone. Yeah. Like, she didn't want any part of this. So like, you know, what Derleth did that was good is he kept Lovecraft alive. Like a lot of these stories might have fallen into obscurity, but the way he went about it was deeply shady. And then he started publishing posthumous collaborations. Mm. So he would publish these stories. Uh, his most famous is a novel called The Lurker at the Threshold, which came out in 1945. It would be like written by H.P. Lovecraft and August Derleth. But what it was would be like from some letter that Lovecraft wrote to him. There'd be like two lines like, I think I might write a story about this. And then Derleth later would go and write the story. Okay. And then claim like a co-author credit. And so this kind of solidified him in like the public consciousness as being the heir to Lovecraft. August Derleth was a shitty fucking writer. Like I've read The Lurker at the Threshold. It's fucking terrible. Mm. (laughs) Almost unreadable. But this, like a lot of people came to know Lovecraft through these posthumous collaborations. Luckily, over time, kind of in the 70s, I think Derleth kind of lost the rights Mm-hmm. A lot of it at this point lovecraft is in public domain so at this point you know there's no end of like lovecraft stories that you can find out there mm-hmm. um and sort of in the like 50s and really in the 60s this third wave of lovecraft fandom started kind of in conjunction with the fandom that rose around J.R.R. tolkien mm-hmm. like weirdly lovecraft kind of became this like counterculture figure Mm-hmm. and so like hippies really were like into lovecraft <laughs> okay. and then like when heavy metal obviously metal dudes were super mm-hmm. lovecraft and so this is what kind of created the steamroller of pop culture that has led to today we have shows like lovecraft country on each you have role-playing games like the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game. Uh, Lovecraft's Outer Gods have been worked into D&D campaigns, things like that. So it's a very complicated legacy. Mm-hmm. But as a horror fan who is in my own way deeply indebted to H.P. Lovecraft, I'm glad that that legacy exists. Mm. I just don't think we should whitewash it. Right. So, yeah. So that's the story of H.P. Lovecraft. Oh, that was dense. Yeah. Yeah, I I know this one ended up being epic. (laughs) And I just kind of decided to go with it because, you know, like this is probably maybe aside from the Stephen King story I did, Mm -hmm. like this is probably the most personal uh, subject for me. Mm -hmm. So I really wanted to give it its due. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of glad it came after your story. (laughs) So like people can tap out if they want to. And I also Mm -hmm. know from having talked to people who listen to the podcast, some of whom are are horror fans, people I know through the horror bookstagram community, things like that. They've wanted me to do this. So hopefully I did. uh, I did it justice. But I do like. I mean, it's important to, like, I think, honor his legacy. Like, he's probably other, maybe even Stephen King, he is the most influential horror writer, certainly of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Like, he just changed the genre forever. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I think, like, I would never want to cancel Lovecraft. But at the same time, it's like, I lost patience years ago with the academics and critics and fans who were just like, why do you talk about the racism? Can we just shut up about the racism? Right. No, you can't. 
we can't. Yeah. And I mean, this goes back to the thing that we've talked about a lot on this, on this podcast, which is just like, this is the kind of stuff that you can't just sweep under the rug. Like if you are a fan, you have to examine it and you have to examine your relationship with the material. And, and I'm not telling you like what side of the argument to come out on, Mm -hmm. but you you can't just ignore it. I mean, I mean, honestly, you can, but then people are going to be like, well, what about this? And then at some, at some point, somebody's going to ask you and you're going to have to have an answer to well, it. I mean, this um, is, and it just, it can't be, it can't be ignored. Um, I mean, this is the thing people can say like, oh, well, you'll find a passage, a racist passage here and there, or like, or I don't read his letters. And that's where you see most of the racism. But the thing is my favorite story of H.P. Lovecraft, the one that is probably the one that I return to the most, that is the biggest influence on me is the shadow over Innsmouth. Mm-hmm. It is not overtly racist because there are no black characters in it, but it it's about thematically what it is about is the horrors of miscegenation because mm-hmm. it's about a guy goes into a small town called Insmith on the Massachusetts coast and essentially realizes that the inhabitants of this town are half breeds who have been breeding with this undersea species called the deep ones. Mm-hmm. And over time, they start to degenerate and turn into deep ones. Mm-hmm. And then the, the sort of shocking twist at the end, sorry, spoiler alert, is that the narrator learns that he actually, like his ancestors are also from Insmith, And he starts seeing the change happening in his own face. Mm-hmm. He's starting to develop the quote Insmith look. Now, there's nothing in there that is overtly about racism. But it's but, clearly like, about, it's, it's that's clearly right. about um, like purity. Yeah, it goes back to his his horror of impurity. Yeah. You know, genet what we would call genetics today. You yeah. Know? Yeah, it's not a quote racist story, but it reflects his racism. Well, it's I also just... a great story, but that is an aspect of the story. Yeah, I just don't think that there's any I mean, un- un- unfortunately, <laughs> you know, like Anybody who came before right now, there is going to be the stuff about anybody who is problematic. You know what I mean? And that, that is, you can look into mother Teresa and find out that there was some problematic as fuck stuff about her same, like there were, you know, same is true about Martin Luther King and, and fucking, you know, and then you've got our founding fathers that we've worshiped, you know, we, our generation grew up thinking that these were, you know, the epitome of heroics and you know and and they were slave owners and you know and all that stuff and it's just like it's the past has to be reckoned with so that we can move forward into the future with a better understanding and better information and that's it it's it's not about i'm certainly not advocating for burning hp lovecraft's books but you just you can't like this isn't something where you just get to go well i like his books and i think they're good so i don't need to worry about this right like you gotta worry about about it well and it's like i've said you know over the last year all the stuff about jk rowling has come out and like it would be very easy for me to get real smug about it except one of my favorite writers is hp lovecraft yeah i try to like i deeply empathize with the feelings of betrayal that a lot of her fans are feeling right now Mm -hmm. and it's a it's a sharper it's more acute because it's happening now you know, right. I've known that Lovecraft was a racist since shortly after I started reading him in middle school. Right. And I've been wrestling with this for, you know, 30 years now. Right. And I don't know the answer of how I feel about it. So right. to to have one of your idols today be saying heinous shit. Like, I, I want to give you grace to like, I know how you don't want to abandon this work that you love. Mm-hmm. And how how do you 
balance the two. I don't know. I think everyone has to figure that out for themselves. Right. I'm going, I'm going to say this and then I'm going to qualify it. And these people are just storytellers. Like Mm -hmm. I'm weary of joining any cult. And that is like the cult of fanship, the cult, like a cult of religion, a cult of ideology, like any of it. It's a dangerous thing to give somebody that much power. Right. Um, And the questioning of it and the examining of it is always a good idea. Yeah. Like just, you know, just be be, beware of your false idols. Like the three writers, I'm going to say four. The four writers that have meant the most to me in the horror world Mm -hmm. are... H.P. Lovecraft, Stephen King, and Clive Barker. And then I'll add Shirley Jackson. The only reason I sort of qualify it is like she's sort of a horror writer. Like she's written a couple overtly horror stories, but a lot of her stuff's not exactly horror. So mm-hmm. I feel a little weird lumping her in with that. But like I'm not uncritical of any of them. I'm going to talk about Clive Barker next week. I promise it will not be the two-hour epic that this Christ. is. Um, there's... <laughs> Partly because there's just not quite as much history there. But, you know, these are the writers who have defined the genre, but there's not a one of them that doesn't come with some problems, you mm-hmm. know? And, like, just I want to end this on, like, I just want to talk a little bit about what I take from Lovecraft. Like, I talk about how inspirational he is for me. The stuff I respond to is the cosmicism. It's the mm-hmm. horror slash fascination of these unknowable spaces, either deep space or the sea. It's the insignificance that I feel in the face of these things. Mm-hmm. That's what I try to tap into when I write. Because mm-hmm. I read a lot of stuff that is sort of what you would call Lovecraftian. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not interested in his concerns about purity miscegenation racial mixing mm-hmm. all that stuff you know i don't take anything of value from that but like i think a lot of people you know they try to separate the two in this kind of false way mm-hmm. and it's like i i'm not uh influenced or inspired by the racist aspects of his work mm-hmm. but i don't ignore them either and i think that's yeah. the key yeah so yeah anyway well thank you guys if if you hung in through this <laughs> thank you for hanging in <laughs> yep um and i would you know this is one like anyone who is a horror fan i know this this subject matter isn't going to appeal to like everyone in our listener base mm-hmm. but for those of you who are horror people i'd like i personally would like to continue this conversation i i could talk about lovecraft until the end of time so definitely reach out to me i want to hear your opinions about lovecraft and about the controversies around lovecraft and mm-hmm. kind of where you fall and if you hate Lovecraft, I want to hear about that too. And I want to know why, not in mm-hmm. a like to interrogate you way, but like he is such a unique and particular voice. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious to hear what works and what doesn't for people. Yeah. So, yeah. So anyway, I guess on that note, be sure to find us on social media. Find us on social media. Subscribe. Rate. Rate review. And all that good stuff. And uh, stay weird and stay curious. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. So listen, friends, we'll blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find. Might be true, and that's the weirdest.